Hey, I'm Mark A. Altman. And I'm Darren Dockerman. And I'm Ashley Miller. And we're here to tell you about an exciting new documentary from, well, us. To celebrate the upcoming 60th anniversary of the filming of The Cage, we put together the ultimate love letter to Star Trek, in which we boldly go to filming locations from almost six decades of Star Trek. We are going to crisscross the globe, or at least Southern California, in search of the coolest Star Trek filming locations. We're not only going to tell you the history of these amazing locations, but we're going to tell you about the episodes that were filmed there and give you details you never knew. It's a regular landing party from Vasquez Rocks to the Sepulveda Reclamation Dam to Bronson Caves and uh, Golden Gate Park and even the Embarcadero where Chekhov looked for the nuclear vessels. You'll go with us on an incredible adventure as we crisscross the country in search of adventure and uh, food occasionally while sharing stories about the making of hundreds of incredible locations and episodes. Plus, you never know who'll drop by, drop in, drop out to share their memories and maybe even their food. We've already announced burlesque superstar, Hazel Honeysuckle. But you can expect an array of Star Trek stars, writers, directors, and super fans, not just ourselves, as featured on our hit podcast, Inglorious Trexperts, to drop by and share their own stories as well. Well, we are truly going to run because we are going to make this film and we're going to make it happen today with your help. There may not be money in the future, but there is now. Send us your gold plus latinum because this is a chance to help us make the trek today. And rest assured, this is a team of industry professionals who, like Captain Jellico, will get it done. As uh, most of you know, Mark's Greatest Geek Year Ever documentary just debuted to rave reviews on The CW. And he has been a showrunner and writer-producer on such popular series as Pandora, The Librarians, and Castle. And I personally was shocked to learn that Darren was an associate producer and visual effects supervisor on some movie called Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition. And he's a Hollywood concept designer on major feature films and TV series, including Master and Commander, X3, and Star Trek Picard. You may not know this, but Ashley Edward Miller is the screenwriter for such blockbusters as Thor, X-Men First Class, and the showrunner of Dota Dragon's Blood on Netflix. Join us on the ultimate road trip, or is it a road trek? Either way, keep on trekking, ingloriously of course. And join us on Kickstarter or at makethetrek.com and trekspertsplus.com for more information on how to make the trek happen. Would you like to know more? I, I would. Sure would. Sure you would. Join us at San Diego Comic-Con, GalaxyCon in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Las Vegas's 57-year mission. For more details all summer long, along with the super toys, uh, and grow stronger through the share. <laughs> Get ready. This summer, the Inglorious Live Tour continues. I am ready. Trek... Are you so ready? ready? Are you <laughs> sure you're ready? ready? Well, we're coming to a city near you. Don't miss Ashley Edward Miller, Darren Dockerman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, as we descend 
on San Diego Comic-Con, July 20th to 23rd. Oh GalaxyCon. Raleigh. 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 North Raleigh. Carolina in uh, July 27th through July 30th. Then we're going to be getting lucky in Las Vegas oh for the God. Creation 57-year mission convention on August 3rd to the 6th. And then finally, we're back in Austin, Texas, Labor Day weekend for yet another great GalaxyCon. So for more details, go to ComicCon.org, GalaxyCon.com, and CreationEnt.com. And we'll see you out there on the final frontier or in Raleigh. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie, and I want you to join Ron Howard, Cameron Crowe, Scott Mance, Roger Corman, William Shatner, Paul Schrader, Nicholas Meyer, Henry Winkler, Amy Heckerling, Dee Wallace, Leonard Moulton, and over 100-plus stars, directors, writers, critics, and studio executives on our epic four-week look at the greatest geek year ever, 1982, including deep dives into E.T., Poltergeist, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, My Favorite Year, Diner, Fast Time, at Ridgemont High, The Beastmaster, Blade Runner, and of course, Megaforce. Greatest Geek Year Ever premieres Saturday, July 8th on The CW, or watch a special encore presentation on Tuesday, July 11th, or anytime on The CW app. Remember, the good guys always win, even in the 80s. Hey, this is Mark Altman of Inglorious Trexperts in the 430 movie, and if you're a fan of our podcast, you don't want to miss Deck 78. Available now by subscribing at TrexpressPlus.com. This is a bonus podcast full of great discussions about popular culture, film, and television. By your command, here's a sneak peek. And you know, your talk, I love how, you know, because you've gone on to do work outside of acting with veterans. And I love you give these speeches about what America means. You know, and how exciting you have that great moment where you're talking about how exciting it is to be in this seat of our, our democracy. And it's, it's great. Well, that's what I was going to say when Vinny on, on day one. And by the way, I think that that arc is the most underrated arc. A hundred percent. You know, totally. Cannell totally. even said, oh, Cannell didn't, even though he pretty much left us alone, he still had his opinion, of course. It's still his company. And uh, he thought that, that arc was a little bit too cerebral and confusing, and we vehemently disagreed with him. I said, no, you know, the whole audience can go a few minutes without seeing something blow up, you know? <laughs> yep. might, and especially by that time, we pretty much had our core audience. So they mm -hmm. were with us. By the time day one showed up, they were on board. The ones that were going to be on board were already. So, but I... The way the thing I loved about that one of the things I loved about that arc is when yeah on day one when Vinny goes and he says big pike pull over the car and you see the capital and you see the and Vinny is so sweet almost in his naivete mm -hmm. that's great about, like, oh I love this town you know this is what it's yep. all about and yeah. then as it turns out all these people are want to chop his head off are conspiring against him Absolutely. and that's what's so wonderful is that this could go, you mentioned it before, different genres, that there's the James Bond arc, there's the Godfather, there's this wonderful thing with his mother who who he can't tell that he's an undercover agent, she thinks he's a hood, and now you're doing Seven Days in May and a conspiracy <laughs> thriller. Yeah, yeah. And where the seed of that idea came from was my idea of counterfeiting. As one crime I've always been fascinated by, and mm -hmm. that is, 
And I always thought, even as a kid, I thought, wouldn't it be smarter not to counterfeit your own currency, but counterfeit some foreign currency Mm -hmm. and try to get it, you know, on the foreign exchange, however that works, you know, but that was where the seed of the idea came from was my fascination with counterfeiting. Non-stable destabilization. <laughs> right, well, that then then once uh, David and Steve got on board, then they expanded it to the yeah the non-genuine destabilization and all that. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, and that's the thing that Cattle had a hard time with. I said, no, it's fine when they're in that in that one war room where they have the spray paint cannon or explaining all the steps of what's going on. I had no problem with that. I thought it was great. I thought it was fascinating. What yeah. they, what Steve and, and David came up with. Oh yes. So yeah, I, that's that's one of the most, probably the most underrated arc. Absolutely. Oh, and, and Norman Lloyd is a Hollywood legend. He was a treasure. Oh yeah. I mean, come on. And damn, he was only like 104, 105. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but everybody's Sorry. great now. When David Spielberg gets, uh, you know, basically. Um, Set up by Tracy Lords, and I mean, it's just yeah. so much great, juicy stuff in that. Oh, there, there really is. I, I tell you, I when we talk about this stuff, I just feel so grateful that I was able to do it. Look, you know, I would have loved to have not gotten hurt and been able to continue my career and all that, but things happen in life. What are you going to do? But the fact that I was able to do that at all. And here we are over 30 years later, 30 throughout yeah. third of a century later, and we're still talking about it. You know, I'm, I'm going to do the Lou Gehrig thing here you know? <laughs> <laughs> on the face of the earth. Uh, and I really okay. do feel that way. So subscribe today at TrexpressPlus.com and don't miss a single episode of Deck 78. Fire the Rockets. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And this is Ashley Miller. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And today we're here for, uh, unfortunately, I was, I was going to make a Star Trek three comment to bury our honored dead, but that's so in bad taste. I'm not going to do it. Although I just did it. Um, I'm, I, I think he would appreciate it. Anyway, we're, we're here to talk about the great Manny Cotto. Manny was the executive producer on uh, Star Trek Enterprise Season 4. A wonderful guy. A wonderful writer. Um, he had a beautiful family. And at 62, he passed away of pancreatic cancer this week. And it is truly, uh, it is a huge loss for everyone who knew him, as well as the larger Star Trek community. And we felt it would only be appropriate to uh, to honor Manny by bringing on some of the people that knew him best uh, to talk about his incredible legacy and the incredible person that he was. And uh, we will be joined shortly uh, by Star Trek Enterprise creator and showrunner uh, Brandon Braga and um, producer, I don't know what his title was on Enterprise, but producer... Um, uh, Michael Sussman, a frequent guest of this podcast. We're delighted to have them both to share their memories of uh, Manny 
And following our interview with Brandon and Manny, we'll be presenting uh, an interview that I did with Manny for my book, The 50-Year Mission. So we'll hear from Manny in his own words, uh, which I think uh, is the best tribute of all we could give to this wonderful, wonderful writer, person, uh, amazing talent. Uh, he's worked on such shows as 24, um, American Horror Story. He created the show Next, uh, Odyssey 5 for Showtime, uh, which ultimately led to Star Trek. He um, uh, directed Dr. Giggles, uh, many other films. He had a fascinating life story, uh, which we'll only touch on uh, as we stay pretty Trek-centered. But uh, I think that uh, I'm really glad to be able to share these, these, uh, these memories of Manny with um, all of you on this very sad day. So we're here with Brandon and uh, Mike to talk about um, the incredible life and career, more career, because I don't know how much we can speak to his life of Manny Cotto, which came as a shock to so many of us uh, today. I I'd love to talk to you, Brandon, because he really was a lifesaver for you when you were sort of burnt out and kind of like, uh, you know, needed help on that third season. You know, a lot of people hadn't worked out and, you know, this is the era of 26 episode seasons and you brought Manny in and he was a great partner in crime for you. And eventually you sort of handed him the keys to the kingdom to sort of, you know, oversee things for the in the fourth season because you were so happy with the job he did. Can you talk to us about sort of that relationship that you had with Manny and what made him so special as a writer and as a person? Well, I, to talk about man, I mean, there's a lot to cover, um, but I, I'll focus on my experience with Manny uh, on Star Trek initially was, as Mike Sussman can attest, we were doing 24, I think 24 episodes a season, maybe it was 26, I don't remember, but it was a lot. And we went... Um, I think when Manny came aboard, Mike, it, we were down to you and Phyllis and Chris, maybe. I mean, it was pretty, it was getting pretty lean. Plenty of staff. Yeah. And, uh, and Manny came in and he, I had seen, um, what was his science fiction show that he did, Mike? Or Odyssey 5. Odyssey 5. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't seen it, but I read the pilot because uh, it was sent over as a writing sample and um, I thought, wow, this guy is a really good science fiction writer and met with him, hit it, really hit it off. And he did a script for us called Similitude, which was uh, one of the better Enterprise episodes about a, a cloned trip, Tucker, uh, that ended up being a very, uh, very moving episode, oddly enough. And so we brought up Manny on as a high level uh, kind of executive producer, and he just... He also had a passion for Star Trek, you know, like Mike. He came in, this was a dream job for him. This was the job he really wanted to get. And I really wonder why Manny didn't come across the Star Trek threshold long before that time. I wish he had, because he, he just, he knew how to write the show. And he had been, you know, like his brother, directing and... Um 
writing. And of course, he, you know, was writing partners with Brian Helgeland. I mean, he back in the 90s sold The Ticking Man, was what the yep. first $1 million. People talk about Shane Black, but, you know, the first one through that door was Manny and Brian with Ticking Man. That was right. a huge spec sale. I remember that. And that, that's where I recognized the name. I also recognized the name from a movie called Dr. Giggles that I really liked. Um, and he wrote and directed. The doctor is insane. <laughs> so I had I was kind of a, a fan of Manny's for different reasons when he came in, but he just Star Trek was in his DNA. He knew what to do, and that's it's really what we needed. And he really, um, you know, he was a real became a a, a close friend very quickly. Um, he, not only did he contribute great scripts, he was help, very helpful. I mean, he helped us break all the other stories. And he he really helped me as a showrunner. You know, Mike, you may not know this, but he, or you may know, he was a huge fan of yours. And um, there was a script that you had written called uh, Future Tense for Enterprise. And I remember... I was just in that crazed rewrite mode and I was looking at the script and saying, oh, it's got this problem, this problem, that problem. And Manny said, this script is great. Mm -hmm. Just the way it is. Wow. And um, th that was really a, 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 a is epiphanous a word? I have no idea. Uh, but it was, it, it was, is now. <laughs> it was, a, it was a, a moment of great clarity where I was like, Holy shit, like he's right. I'm just in this really bad frame of mind. And it, 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 the script is great. And it got shot pretty much as you wrote it, Michael, with very few notes. That was, Manny headed my ass off at the pass on that one. Because I was going to, I was ready to give you a bunch of notes. <laughs> and, and he was like, it's a great script. And that, and I knew in that moment, like it was that, he was going to take over the show. Yeah, and you were absolutely right. I mean, it, it was his dream job. And and that was the the joy of being there and seeing someone who was just ready for it. Um, and, I, and also what you said, Brandon, about how like how he had not come across the, the radar at Star Trek before is, is, I guess, a bit of a mystery or maybe not a mystery because he was probably busy working and and uh you know doing 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 very well without us but it it makes me realize like how much of what goes on in our industry in particular is the the luck of timing and you know had manny been available a year or two sooner what difference that might have made to the fate of the show and manny also did a show uh I think it only lasted one season recently on Fox called Next about AI, which I, I thought was really wonderful, which um, obviously there's been a lot of AI stuff and Star Trek and media for a long time. But considering the world we're in right now, that maybe he was a little ahead of his time there with that show. Um, but I was I was very glad to get to work with him for, you know, season and a half or however long it was. I, I felt very lucky. And Brandon, you got to see how he worked as a showrunner when you went to work on 24 with him. Um, what was that like? Because that was a new experience for you um, going in and sort of helping them out. And, you know, after having 
known only Star Trek for all these years. That was a very different type of show. And I imagine that Manny was very helpful in that regard. Well, whereas Manny's dream job was to write for Star Trek, I, I, my dream was to do a thriller. And, um, and he knew that. So when I was finishing up my Paramount deal, he convinced Howard Gordon to hire me on 24. And, um, and it was uh, a blast. It was, the, it was, I just had an amazing time. And so Manny kind of returned the favor, I feel, in inviting me over there. It's interesting to see all the, I mean, just outpouring of, of, of love because obviously, you know, in this business, you've both been showrunners, you know, Mike on Perception, you on, you know, God, a zillion shows, Star Trek shows, Voyager and Enterprise, um, that it's hard, um, to, to keep up the love. Right. Because someone's always getting fired for a variety of reasons. Somebody's always feeling they didn't get a fair shake. And so when you have somebody like Manny and you read all these people, just, you know, from Tim Benier to Alan Brenner to all these people who are just, you know, the outpouring of love and respect, it's very hard to, 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 to do that. You know, you tend to leave a lot of enemies in this business, rightly or wrongly. And Manny was a guy who kind of left just this, you know, so much um, uh, positivity and so much love and respect behind. I mean, he had an amazing career. I mean, it, from from beginning to end, you know, he was, and I am so, I mean, I can only imagine how much fun he was having on the American Horror Story anthology, writing, uh, I think he directed one, he wrote tons of them. And that had and I, that had to have been another dream job for Manny, and he was doing it right up to the strike. So you know, when they say they he died loving what he did, uh, it's true. Yeah, you know, he, well, also, so he also passed away with a loving fam a family, four kids, and his wife Robin. Was that something that you feel really bonded you? Because obviously, you're a huge horror fan. And, you know, he came from horror, but his dream was doing Star Trek. You came from Star Trek. Your dream was to do horror, which you eventually got to do. So um, was that something that you felt like bonded you in the office, but outside the office, these shared interests? We had a, we had a shared interest in horror, but genre in, in particular. You know, Manny was very, had a deep knowledge of, of genre going all the way back to Pulp Fiction, the, the the literal pulp magazines. He had a library, uh, what he called the, the the pulp room. He had shadow the the shadow issue one, like he had every issue of the shadow. He has a you know he had a pulp collection that was uh, maybe the best in the world. I mean, I wouldn't. That's what happens when you sell a spec script in the '90s for a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but so his null he, he, and and he had all he has tons of the. Uh, astounding stories and the science fiction ma uh, magazine that Isaac Asimov started. He, I think he had all those issues. Um, so he just had a real deep love for genre and we, we certainly bonded over that. Mike, what was he like in the room? Like what was his demeanor? What was his style as a showrunner? You know, more than I think any other showrunner I've worked with and my apologies, Brandon. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> he was, it, it was, it, 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 
we, we were all equals in there. There was no sense of this is how I want to do things. It was it was very inclusive and very welcoming. And it was it was like a band of, of, of brothers and sisters uh, just sitting around wondering what would be a, a cool thing to do on Star Trek this week. And I've I've yet to have an experience like that um, on any show, <laughs> you know, the the shows I've I've had a hand in as a you know as a as a you know a co-creator or, or an EP. Um, I, I last had dinner with Manny a couple of years ago, you know, long before the the pandemic, and you know he'd obviously moved on to a lot of other things, and he, he'd been very complimentary to the you know the work I'd done since, and and I to him. And yet we both looked back on those two years on Enterprise as like, and I was surprised, I knew it was true for me and I hesitated to say it, but it, that it was also true for him was a, a little surprising, but th they really were a highlight of our, not just of our, our careers, but our, our lives to take that childhood love and find a way to contribute to it um, as a grown up, And that really touched me. Um, I haven't seen him a lot in the last uh, 18 or so years since since the show wrapped, but he was like kind of one of those old friends that you could just kind of pick up where you left off, no matter how much everyone's hair has thinned or how much weight people have put on or lost. Um, it, it was it, there was something sort of eternal about it, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss him. I'm going to miss knowing he's not out there uh, doing his doing the thing he loved. Brandon, it must mean a lot to you, but you truly gave him this gift. You know, the dream for him was to do Star Trek. And you not only gave him the chance to do Star Trek, but then with that fourth season, you basically said, I'm giving this to you. I'll be here to help you. But, you know, this is you. You now have this kingdom to run, you know, and how special that was. Because, you know, like I interviewed him a couple of times and you know, you could just tell how much joy he got from doing that one season of 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 Star Trek. You know, I mean, how special it was. It well, wasn't just a job. The gift he the gift was to me, and you know, and I've and I've said repeatedly, seeing what uh, Mike you guys did with season four of Enterprise, I. I I kind of felt, with all due respect to the writers that came before and to myself, I felt like that's probably what the show should have been from the get-go. Um, and I really wish that uh, the powers that be at the time had let the show continue because the show had really found its voice and the shit you guys had planned for season five was amazing, which I think included the Romulan War and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, so um, it's a real bummer that, that the show didn't uh, continue because it should have. Yeah, it was so interesting always to hear him talk about what if, you know. I mean, I think he was realistic in knowing that the writing was on the wall, but at the same time, hoping that if there were a reprieve, there's well, all was, this cool stuff. It was, it was, it kind of came suddenly, honestly. But I don't know that the writing was on the wall. I mean... Mike, you guys were talking about season five, weren't you? We were. I, it's so funny because I think it's there's a little bit of revisionist history going on. Like, oh, we knew this was the end, but we didn't know, and and we were we were trying to make the best show that we possibly could with the hope that it would make a difference in terms of the numbers. 
Um, maybe the writing was on the wall from the, you know, the mindset of the, of the studio, but I certainly never proceeded that way. And I never heard it in the room either. We, we weren't also, we were also like just trying to come up with how many we did that season. I guess we did 22, um, which was a short season for Star Trek, but, um, there, there wasn't, there, there was talk about where things would go in season five, but there was no sense until the very end when, when we did get notice from the network that it was over, that this was defini- definitely the last season. We were just trying to do the best Star Trek we could. And, you know, it's interesting because not since really um, John Meredith Lucas on the original was there like a writer director. And I wonder had the show gone on, if maybe he would have, broken through and and had the chance to write and direct um probably you know, not is... <laughs> <laughs> not when you're running a show <laughs> well maybe the finale well i mean i mean brandon you got to do that on the orville but that was a very different situation wasn't it well we had all the scripts written ahead of time yeah. and that's that that's the crucial difference when you're doing 22 episodes and you're living you know it's it's a whole different thing yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, what, uh, any, any stories that come to mind, just maybe something that happened, some little moment, something that comes to mind when you think back about those days and something with, with Manny, whether it be something that happens at the heart building or, or, or going to lunch across the street at the Mexican place or just, um, you know, uh, a rap party or just a- a- anything that, you know, you, you, you wouldn't see in, uh, uh, you would just a little moment, uh, 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 that you can recall with, with Manny that was special. Mike. Uh, I mean, the thing that immediately leaps to mind, you know, it was, was, the, was the final month or two of, of enterprise where we had, you know, for the finale, we'd rebuild, a lot of the next gen sets, you know, we had the corridors and the the briefing room and and uh, a couple of others and 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 of course the sets for um, the original series that we rebuilt for the Mirror Universe episodes and watching, you know, running around those sets with Manny and just we we were both kids in the candy store. And I've got a couple of pictures of of him just like with the biggest smile. He looks like he's 12 years old. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm on Picard's Enterprise. This is the coolest thing ever. That's what comes back to me. And uh, it's why it's, I think one of the reasons it's so meaningful, my memories of Manny and Brandon and my time on that show is that I connect that with, you know, my teenage years watching Next Gen or my childhood imagining, you know, the adventures of, of, uh, Kirk and his crew. Um, and seeing that in Manny was really touching. He and, made himself, uh, he, he had a cameo in one of the final episodes of Enterprise. He made himself an admiral, I noticed. Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how much people want, rank was important to these actors. It, it was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's, it's hilarious. It's like, it's real. It's like even now, 30 years later after Voyager, you keep reading, why, why is Harry Kim still an ensign? It's like, who the fuck cares? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, it, it, was, it was really weird. But um, yeah, I remember Manny walking around in the Admiral's uniform. 
He was very proud of himself. <laughs> Look, I mean, Manny, the show was gone. He was just walking around in the admiral's uniform. <laughs> Manny was remarkable because there are not a lot of conservatives who are funny. And he is a he was a very funny guy. And look, he was also very conservative, but he came from Cuba. He came from Havana. So we gotta give him that. <laughs> you know, Manny, and, Manny, Manny was one of the funniest people I've ever met. And he had an amazing, he did, it sounds like one of those cliche dateline things where, you know, they had a great, I missed their laugh, but he, he really did have a, a an amazing, a raucous laugh and a very wicked sense of humor. He, um, and he, I know he's the story he loved to tell. And that was a, we've all have our Shatner stories that he loved that day at the commissary pitching Bill, you know, trying to get him to do the show. That was like one of the highlights, you know. And Yeah, so there was a lunch. It was actually at a restaurant that's no longer there, an Italian restaurant on Melrose. I can't remember the name. It's no longer there. But uh, it was a lunch between me and Rick and Manny and Shatner. And uh, I don't remember what the storyline was. I'm sure Manny did. But um, it, we walked out of that lunch knowing we were – you know, thrilled that we were bringing Kirk back and we had a whole storyline and Shatner loved it. He had his contributions and then it fell apart when Shatner wanted, you know. Yeah, in order to couldn't afford him. And I, I don't hold that against him, you know. But uh, at that time, unfortunately, I don't remember if the, if the studio had already been taken over um, by new ownership. Maybe not, but it was just a little too expensive. But it was fun to have Manny there, and I'm glad he could be there. Yeah. I remember going to Rick's office, and the studio had, uh, I guess in Vegas, had done the uh, focus group. with a, They created a commercial intercutting Shatner's Kirk with Enterprise to see if people were interested. And people were interested, but like not like off the chart interested. And that was, I remember Rick saying that was sort of their justification for not coming up with the money. It would have been cool to, I mean, it would have been a cool thing to have Shatner on. Totally. You, you were ready to work with him again, Brandon, after your experience on Generations? I, I didn't have a bad experience with him. I was just terrified of him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, which is interesting because that was Nick Meyer's experience too. He's the he's Captain Kirk, man. Yeah. He, he, he was Bill Shatner one second, and then if he wanted to put you in your place, he was Captain Kirk. So true. I, I kid I, you not. I kid you not. You, you've experienced it. I had the same thing. He could be totally avuncular and charming, but then if he was pissed off, yeah. And and, and uh, fortunately, he was rarely... We, we, we didn't see that side of him very often. Um, you know, Brandon, you said it yourself. I mean, obviously, the greatest loss, of course, is his uh, wonderful wife and four young kids. It's, it's, it's so sad. And, you know, you've lost important... Uh, uh, members of the Star Trek family in the past, you know, but Michael was a lot older when he passed, uh, you know, uh, one of your earliest and first older, mentors. Old, not younger than Manny, but older, yeah, but older than me at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you always say, oh, it's too soon, but I mean, 62, it's just, it's, 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 it's so sad. And he had so much left to give this industry, as you said, till the very end, he was still working and yep. doing great great work um, in this business. And you know, it's a, it, it, it really, you know, it's the first contemporary mm -hmm. um, 
that I've experienced, the, the loss of my of a, of a true contemporary. Michael Piller, it was a big one, you know, because he was my first mentor and boss and so forth. But um, Manny was somebody who was a friend and contemporary. So it, but you know, he, he leaves behind a great body of work and a great family. And he has a very tight knit extended family that are going to be there for Robin and the kids. And so I think, you know, there's a lot to be grateful for, for Manny's uh, period on earth. And and Michael, you you went on to be a showrunner yourself, obviously. With I know you're gonna say co-showrunner, we can, we know, but take the credit. So um, you went on to be a showrunner on Perception, a show you created. What did you learn? Maybe what were the takeaways from Manny? Was there anything that you took away from your experience working with him? Anything you learned? Wow, um, you know that that you could just that you could be yourself and. And run a room and and just just be a regular person. Not that the other showrunners I've worked with were not regular people, but and maybe it was because when Manny came in, he was he was sort of kind of you know he was I can't remember what the titles were. He was a, I was a lower level, maybe a co-producer or something. Maybe he was coming he was coming in as a co-EP at the time, but he was an unknown quantity. I remember Brandon. I think Manny was like rewriting a script early on before he turned in a draft. And Brandon was like, Mike, come here, come here, come here. How's, how's he doing? Is it any good? You know, we didn't know. We kept bringing, you know, we, all these new writers kept coming in and washing out and yeah. weren't doing the level of work that, you know, that the Brandon and Rick insisted on. And I was like, I think this guy's the real deal. I think he's really good. And and then, of course, season four comes along and Manny, and, and I was wondering, like, are, are things going to change? Because I thought we had a great working relationship. And I felt like I could just kind of come into his office and say, hey, I got this crazy idea. What do you think about it? And it now suddenly perhaps he would become the boss. And that never happened. That never happened. He was always that, you know, that guy with with the big laugh who you could just kind of come in and say, you know, you didn't even have to preface it with, okay, here's a stupid idea. But you could just come in and say the stupid idea. And he would be, he he would be accepting of it. He may not like it. He may not want to do it. He may add to it and say, "What if we did this instead?" And and then you'd be riffing and you'd be off. You'd be off to the races. Um, that was something I hadn't quite experienced working with Brandon. I was so in awe of Brandon's work um, that I think I put and to this day put Brandon on a pedestal. Um, and but Manny was someone I I felt like I knew from the get go because I was there when he came in, right? And you know to have to have done further seasons with him I would have would have been a dream. But I'm glad I you know we got we got that one year as it was. And the, again the, the the four years on that show were were really a highlight for me. Well, I want to ask you guys both something that and it's related to what you were just talking about mike and it and it goes back though to, to brandon your story about your epiphanous moment um where you know manny looked at you and said look mike's script is great as is and he you know he prevented you from giving notes that turned out to be unnecessary i guess my question for you brandon is did that other than leaving that script alone did that have a, a, a long-term impact on you as a as a showrunner, as a writer? And, and I think for for Mike, you know, were there things that Manny did 
along those lines that you picked up, that you internalized, and you brought along with you uh, when you were you know running your own show? Well, to answer your question, it it, it changed the way I it changed my approach forever. It was kind of a splash of, of cold water in my face. You know, when you're in the trenches and just constantly churning scripts out, sometimes it's it's just hard to stop and just re read something not critically. And um, he changed the way I became much more open about reading scripts. And it really was a, and I trusted his instincts, you know, and I, a lot happened in that moment. And it turned out to be a great episode. He was 100% right, you know, and um, and it just made me realize uh, I can be 100% wrong about something. So I, I became, I, it did change the way I, I, I thought about things moving forward. Well, it's interesting, Brandon, because, you know, obviously you were very close for a long time with Rick, but Rick wasn't, you know, certainly didn't start out as a writing producer. He was more on the physical production side. He he understood story, but he wasn't a guy who'd ever been in a writer's room or ran a writer's room. You had a mentor in Michael. You know, Jerry, as talented as she was, she wasn't somebody, she, she is as different from you as I could possibly imagine, right? Two people being. Um, but Manny was more of a, you said yourself, a contemporary. You know, it was somebody, I mean, you had that with Ron, but, you, you know, after Ron left, you know, here you kind of had somebody who you respected, who had a lot of the same touchstones and interests and passions as you. And and like you said, you sort of, it, it changed you a little or you matured or you evolved, um, you know, to sort of understand like, oh, I can, you know, I could stop now. Like, I don't have to be, I don't have to keep rewriting. I don't have to be uh, you know, of constantly reevaluating, like maybe this is good, you know, and and it, it, it's interesting to see that he was the one who had that kind of impact, and he was the catalyst for change for you in a sense. We also, you know, we had other writers there too, like Chris Black, and I don't want to diminish Chris's contributions. We're talking about Manny today, so sure. I just want to make that clear. But um, it was a huge moment because I had a draft with all my notes on it, and I threw it in the trash. It, and that was that. And and it was a huge relief. <laughs> it was just like, awesome. He's right. It is a great script. What the fuck? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that's great. And look, I'm so appreciative. I know, you know, at one point, you, you want to celebrate the lives of the people that mattered in your life who you lost, but it's also hard because it's so fresh. This just happened. It came as such a surprise um in many ways and you know to then sit and turn around and you know sort of you know talk about it but i think it's so important that these unsung heroes that many people maybe don't know what they they mean to the franchise writ large but as individuals to individual people that we can sort of call that out and that's well, why i'm so appreciative that you guys would take time to talk about this when the wound is so fresh well you you know better than anyone that you know he's part of star trek history he's part of star trek continuity star trek family you know and fans of the longtime fans of the show know who he is and know his work and know about that season four of enterprise they know all about it 
And so in a funny way for the fans out there who are grieving about Manny, it's important to get it, it, to get in front of it. Yeah. You know, and I'm glad that you're doing this. Well, and it's like, I, you know, we're talking about a person whose life is so much bigger than Star Trek. Obviously this is a Star Trek show and his legacy to Star Trek, you know, I think will ultimately, you know, be as you know important when people talk about all the great, uh, Star Trek writers who passed away too soon, whether it be Gene Kuhn or um, Michael, you know, uh, Manny, just 62 years old. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around because he had so much still to give. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it tr truly is a tragedy for his family and, and, you know, for people who admire his work. And I just, like I said, I know how close you guys were with him, how much you enjoyed working with him, how much he brought the fun to a really tough, like it's a tough business. And you guys were there when this was an even tougher business because you were doing 22, 24, 26, whatever the fuck it was back then. And, you know, you, you come back, you know, you, you'd have a couple of weeks off for hiatus and then have to do it all again. And it was a brutal pressure cooker. And the fact that, you know, he could come and, and, and you could have these laughs and he could help just, make it more palatable and, 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 and the, you know, all these years later, you look back so fondly on that time, I think is a wonderful thing because uh, as we all know, TV isn't always that way. Yeah, there were no, there were no, um, Mike, I think you would agree. There were never, there were no bad experiences with Manny. You know, he, it was a really, uh, it was a fun time. Yeah. I mean, you have a saying that I've quoted often, Brandon, fun to write, fun to watch. Uh, working with Brandon or working with Brandon and working with Manny, it was always, it was fun. It was always fun, um, particularly in, in season four. And that translated onto the screen. And, um, you know, if this gets people to check out more of Manny's work, whether it's Star Trek or American Horror Story. And he was very proud of Odyssey 5 too. Yeah. And I guess it's not wrong to say that was a big part of getting Peter Weller to do the penultimate episode as well. Manny put Peter Weller on 24. I mean, I think Manny put Peter Weller in everything. And that's how I met Peter Weller too and, and hired him as a director on a show that I did later on. Um, he was a big P Peter Weller guy. <laughs> There's nothing wrong a, with that. A, he, he played, yeah, he played a big villain, right? He played a big villain in your show and in, 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 uh, Enterprise. He's played, uh, you know, he, 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 obviously we all love him for Bucker Banzai. Um, when I think I Manny lured him in by promising him a directing assignment on Enterprise season five. <laughs> Ah, the old bait and switch. <laughs> Never fails. Um, and I recently saw, well, not recently, but when I was researching some 1982 films, watched um, Shoot the Moon, which was one of Peter Weller's earliest supporting roles. And he's so good in it. Yeah, so he, good in it. Yeah, Albert Finney. Yeah, Albert Finney and Diane Keaton. But Peter Weller uh, plays the new boyfriend, and he's great. And it's very different than RoboCop and... You know, Buckaroo, and it's 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 it, he showed like, he had a lot of range. Anyway, this is not the Peter Weller memorial, but uh, uh, guys. Well, they, by, by the way, it's it's apt because because he they were they were such close friends that Weller was the best man at his wedding, the Robin. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's Doctor Peter Weller. 
<laughs> That's right. <Yeah. laughs> and then he he, he did he did he did the band the Hong Kong Cavaliers play afterwards? No, <laughs> not at all. Um, is there someone out there crying in the dark? Yeah. Okay. But uh, look, I'm so appreciative of you guys um, taking the time to do this and to have this chance to uh, to talk about Manny. It's always it's great to have you guys on the show anytime. Obviously, I, I hate it that it's under these circumstances, but it's uh, much appreciated. Always, well, I, Mark. I hope that you're you're going to play some. The best thing you could possibly do is play some uh, Manny interviews. Yeah, I'm going to we're going to do that. We're going to do that. Um we've had him on the show before. He was fantastic, but I have some I have some raw interview raw interviews from when I interviewed him for the 50 year mission that we're going to share. Oh, cool. Um, oh, so uh I have to listen to him first to see <laughs> to be <laughs> down, but um yeah, we'll um we'll, we're going to we're going to uh share those as well. So Manny can speak for himself. But okay, so let's start. Let's let's start from the beginning. I mean, when you came on, you know, Brandon, when he was initially hiring for the first season, was I want people who don't know Star Trek. I want you know, Rick too. It's like let's bring on people who are not familiar with the franchise or haven't been involved with the franchise and aren't necessarily big Star Trek fans. Although it turned out a lot of them were. Um, tell me a little bit about how you first came on board and if sort of your love and passion for Trek was sort of in the closet or if you were very honest about it during that first meeting? Um, no, I was very honest about it. I, I had no idea that there was a mandate not to hire people who knew Trek. I came on, um, I had done a series, I, I created and produced a series called Odyssey 5 for Showtime and uh, which had run only one season, but Brandon had um, read the script. I don't know if it was submitted, the pilot script, which had been either submitted by my agents or Kim or if he had seen it or what, I don't quite remember, but I liked it very much and had thought it was, uh, you know, really kind of, you know, Star Trek in, 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 in tone or, or, or style or what have you. And so he, I just came in for a meeting. Odyssey, Odyssey 5 had ended and I was, uh, I was coming back from Europe on vacation and I, you know, I heard, you know, go meet on Enterprise. And, and so I went to meet with Brandon and, and, you know, I remember they were, they were uh, in the middle, I guess, of the Borg episode. For Enterprise, because Brandon, or about to go into, because Brandon was 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 uh, inspecting a, a prop board arm, which had all you know, it's all various more open board mechanisms. So they were doing that episode, and I had come in and, and you know we sat down and chatted, and I told him very much that I was a huge you know original series fan, and and that uh, you know I was you know I was a, a pretty big TNG fan, and and. And that I I was kind of spotty at the time, frankly, on Voyager and Deep Space. I had seen some of them, not that so many. So, you know, maybe the fact that I was spotty was what made him, you know, you know, kind of spark to me or whatever. But 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 the idea was that he. I don't remember him being put off by it at all. I think it was. Uh, I think we just kind of hit it off on the kind of science fiction we liked and and what kind of stuff we liked and and uh, you know he brought me on. I think uh, you know there was I was replacing somebody who had just been let go. Um, so he was in a pretty desperate straits. He had right. lost his. I remember him. He, he was in a pretty, pretty crazed state. He, he was. He was. At a, he was at a low point for writers. He had just lost a big writer that he'd let go, and the other writers weren't delivering scripts that made him happy. So he was kind of. He was pretty frazzled. I remember when I came on. So he. I think he was kind of hoping that I could fit the bill, uh, uh, which may which may explain the, you know the haste in which I was brought on. But anyway, but. It, it, Anyway, point being, you know, I came on, but I was pretty open about my my feelings for the show. 
had had you been watching the show at that point? I mean, you were on another show, so there's not a lot of time to be sitting around watching television. Yeah. I watched the I watched the you know I watched the, um, the 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 pilot. I mean, you know, the first two the, the two parter, and I saw I caught an occasional episode now and then. But no, I, I wasn't watching. I wasn't watching much of anything. I, I was like in the middle of my own show, like you said. So, and I was in you know we were in Toronto, and that was all I did. I missed, uh, you know, but I did brush against it because at one point we were for Odyssey Five. We were, we were, we were, we wanted to get uh, Scott Bakula to play the lead instead of Weller, and we were going to go out with an offer to Bakula, and Bakula's agents basically said no. He's doing Enterprise, and there's no way you can match that offer, so don't even bother. So we were kind of going after the same guys for a moment there. But um, uh, besides that, no, and I, you know, I watched a few episodes. That's all. When you had first. Uh, met with Brandon, I mean, you were very honest about the fact that you had a passion for Trek. Tell me a little bit about how you first sort of discovered Star Trek and, you know, what what was it you loved about the original? Um, I discovered Star Trek, I remember when I first saw Star Trek, and it, I saw one episode in its original run, um, The Gamesters of Triskelion. And you were uh, still a fan? Well, <laughs> no, I wasn't actually. I didn't <laughs> okay. like it. I was little. I was very little at the time. I was a young kid. I was still in Lost in Space age. So I was, I was a Lost in Space fan. <clears throat> and my, I, I caught this by accident. My parents were watching it. Uh, I don't know why, because they hate science fiction, but for some reason they were watching it. And I saw this, and I was like, this is weird, and I just did not like it. Did not spark to it. It wasn't until many years later when it was in syndication that a group of uh, you know, fans, you know, sci-fi nerds around my, the, the, my, my grade school were talking about the show and all this, and when it ran, it would ran, you know, on, on Channel 35 in Orlando, ran uh, at 7 o'clock every night. And so it was perfect. I could, you know, finish my homework and watch it. And so I started watching it, and I just became transfixed by it. Every, you know, I just I just fell in love with it from, from, from everything I saw. And, you know, obsessed with it, and, and I would, I would you know, tick off, because they, they would run them in sequence, and I would tick off my three favorite, when they would come around, my three three favorite episodes were uh, Amok Time, what was, it was Who Mourns for Adonis, then Amok Time, and then Doomsday Machine, which was my all-time favorite. So I would wait till Doomsday Machine comes around. Right. Not that I didn't enjoy the other ones, because right, right. I did, but it was always, oh my God, Doomsday is approaching, you know, it was, it was like, you know. So we became fanatic, and we were so fanatic in the timing, this is, you know, obviously, there were no cell phones. We would, we would take uh, uh, cassette recorders and record the episodes, the, the dialogue, the sound from the episodes, and then play them at lunch at high school just to listen to it. Um, uh, that was our way of, of getting our kind of you know, afternoon Star Trek fix. Uh, and I still remember the, uh, the big event was the very first Star Trek convention in Orlando, which I believe was in 79. And uh, it was uh, you know, Walter Koenig was the guest. He was the you know the, the, the guest of honor, and remember waiting in line, and, and with all my friends, and getting a photo. Still a snapshot of me somewhere with Walter Keenig, and there was an original phaser from the show was there, and, and a glucite case which we all marveled at, and there was a room where they were showing Star Trek episodes. There was a, what was amazing then is you can actually just watch. They were actually showing. You, you didn't have to wait for them to come around on television. You could just sit there, and someone would pop in a tape, and there they were. And the bloopers were huge. That was those, those were all the big you know, the big uh, uh, events back then because we had no access to that stuff. It was all that and the only other book and the books, uh, The Making of Star Trek, uh, which I just devoured and which was ultimately decided, led me to a decision to, that this is what I wanted to do because I realized people actually do this for a living. 
It's interesting. It seems to be a recurring theme for a lot of people. That was a great book. Yeah, Stephen Poe. Yeah. It's an amazing book. Yeah, it was a you know, I just you know, dog-eared copy. Um, and uh, it was a really, actually a really good book. I mean, I'd, I'd look at it every once in a while. It was really detailed and memos, and it was very sophisticated. Um, it's interesting. People, everyone who went into movies, it seems like their you know, touchstone was the Jaws log. And everybody yeah. is. Oh, I read, I read, I read the, the Jaws log, yeah. yeah. It was, well, that was Star Trek and then the making of 2001, the mm -hmm. Kubrick movie, which, which was a great favorite also, and then the Jaws log I devour as well. What do you, uh, and then of course 79 was the year that Star Trek Motion Picture was mm -hmm. coming out. Was there much excitement about that? And Huge what, excitement. What was your sort of feelings when you saw it? Um, you know, I was one of the guys who was in kind of in denial. <laughs> I was running around saying it was great, it was great, it was great, and it wasn't until many years, until actually Star Trek 2 came around that I realized I didn't much like 1. Um, but we were so excited about it. I mean, we were just, we couldn't believe it, and, and it was, you know, it was we were fanatical for it, and, and convinced ourselves that it wasn't as bad as it really was. Uh, um, so it was kind of like, I, you know, I sympathize with the guys who, who lined up to see, uh, you know, um, Phantom Menace, who convinced themselves that it wasn't as bad as it was. Although Phantom <laughs> Menace is worse, I would, I would argue, than Star Trek ever, ever got to be. Absolutely. Um, but uh, you know, so we were we were kind of in denial. But by the way, we got to see some beautiful shots of the Enterprise. And we got to see some cool stuff. There were Klingons, so it wasn't a total disaster. Um, but in large part, it was pretty boring. And your three favorite episodes are fairly eclectic, you know, among yeah. time and who wants Brad and I. That's the thing. I mean, that was the run I, I loved back then. I mean, you know, I also loved Balance of Terror is one of my favorites. Uh, you know, that, so I mean, there were and there were there were a lot. I mean, I, you know, I loved Shortly. I mean, I loved a lot. But right. those were just those three in order because they led up to the Doomsday Machine were the ones I'm particularly fanatical about. I mean, it's hard for somebody younger to understand what it was like turning on the channel and not knowing what episode you were going to get and hoping right. it was right. something you loved. Right, yeah. Um, and yeah, it is hard now. What was it like, you know, when... And the children's lead came on, you know, yeah. something you, you did. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you, I don't know. I mean, you, you might be more sophisticated than I was. When I was a kid watching these, I loved when the children <laughs> and the children shall lead. There was very few that I actually thought were bad. Right, right. You know, Spock's brain I knew was, was pretty bad. And, um, you know, Turnabout Intruder, I was like, this is, this is a low point. But, you know, most of the episodes I actually thought were, I really liked them. I, I, didn't, I didn't really think they were bad until later on. Yeah. You know. And what about the, the converse of that? Like, were there episodes that as a kid you didn't like that maybe you appreciate a lot more now? Maybe uh, Gamesters or Triscalian or... Well, Gamesters, I, I remember liking less when I saw it in the... in the in the Because uh, Gamesters had a, had a definite lost in space feel. The, Gamesters was, was an episode that could have come out of, like, Irwin Allen. Mm -hmm. With, you know, the, 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 it was... He was... He really, the, you know, the guy literally looked like, uh, you know... Uh, um, Shoot the uh, Ming, you know Emperor Ming. I mean, it was it was this was this was a different kind of sci-fi. But so I didn't much like it first. I, I thought that one was kind of goofy, but uh, ultimately liked it as well. I thought it was it was fun and, and you know and uh, and the, the the chick was was hot. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because there's an episode that yes, the makeup and the uh, the costumes conspire to make it seem. Really silly, but at its heart, there's this really interesting premise of totally, these, yeah. you know, brains that yeah. are, you know, lost their physical betting, body, betting yeah, on betting, you know, life and death. Yeah. And it was, I, I thought, I, 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 don't, I don't know if that was, because I later saw Flash Gordon's serial, 
and I don't remember which serial it was, where they had creatures. He, he was in a pit, and he was fighting monsters who were, you know, he, he was forced to fight monsters, and there was a character who came out who was kind of this tall, lumbering guy with fangs who looked exactly like that guy in, in Gamesters, the, the tall, giant mm-hmm, cl- mm-hmm. creature-type dude. So they, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were, there was a Flash Gordon, you know, riff on that episode, which is fine. It was interesting. It's fun later on, but as a kid, I was like, yeah, it's a little goofy. And then you saw Khan, and you, you loved Khan. Yeah, I loved Khan, totally. Totally loved Khan. But I was skeptical. I mean, when I heard it was going to be Ricardo Montalban returning as Khan, I was like, Really? Uh, you know, uh, Fantasy Island. He's 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 the guy. So there was a lot of like, oh God, going in because it wasn't like you know it was Ricardo Montalban's con. It was more Ricardo Montalban's Fantasy Island. It was a, a kind of a joke. But of course, that immediately, you know, faded away the minute he appeared on screen. It's one of the great introductions of all time, and uh, you were totally swept away into this great storm. What uh, were there any of the other films, at least from the original series, that uh, that really resonated for you? You know, as it went on, you know, because I know, you know, at the time, Star Trek Four was very popular, but you talked to a lot of fans who, you know, aren't necessarily <laughs> passionate about the way. I liked. Uh, I frankly liked uh, two, three, and four a lot. Uh, three, I think, gets uh, a bomb rap for a lot of people, mm-hmm. unnecessarily, and four, I really loved as its own, you know, as its own fun story. Five was a disaster. And six, I thought was okay. Six had a lot. Six had a lot of goofy ass shit, as much as five did, in my opinion. You know, we're gonna spend the whole middle of the episode looking for footwear. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like really yeah. the incriminating, so, the incriminating footwear line. Yeah. You know, and so you're like, come on, guys, it's a Star Trek movie. Um, but beyond, I mean, but there were some great moments in that as well. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I really liked the first, the first trilogy. Uh, you know, two, three, and four, and five, no, and and. And uh, six, okay. And then in 87, Star Trek came back. Mm-hmm. What, you were in college or maybe just out of college? I was out of college. Okay. I was here. 87, no, I was here. I was way out of college. Okay. I was here. Okay. I was here in L.A. I had come here to L.A. here in 84 to get into the movies, so I was already working and you know, building. I was at AFI at the time, I think. So what was your feeling first when you heard an announcement that they were doing a new Star Trek with a completely new cast? I was very excited. I thought, fantastic idea. Broddenberry was, was, you know, heading it up. And and uh, there was a great show uh, at the time on the radio called Hour 25. And at the time, Harlan Ellison was was hosting it. Mike Hodel was on the start. And it was, an hour on, it was one hour on Friday night talking about science fiction. And Harlan Ellison had taken over. He was one of the greatest radio programs of all time with Harlan Ellison on. I mean, I, I wish I had copies of all those. But so he would come on and just rant like Harlan does and talk about this. But but he also promoted the Next Generation. He had you know some of the people on. He talked to them, and and so you know just built up this huge fever pitch. I couldn't wait for it to start. And then I saw the pilot and hated it. Thought it was atrocious. <laughs> I hated all the characters. I just and I saw the next couple episodes and I said I'm done, you know. Bye. <laughs> this is you know I think I I think I left when we got to the jogging planet where people were running around jogging in their little you know I'm like okay bye. I don't know what's going on here but I ain't I ain't part of this. And it wasn't until a couple years later that my brother Carlos, who's also a Star Trek fan, said you know you got to start watching this again. It's really good. Uh, year three and four is when it started really turning around like when Michael Pillar came on and so I started watching it again and then kind of fell in love with the characters and the stories and, and from that point on I you know 
I was a pretty regular viewer of TNG, and I, I had the same reaction to Deep Space Nine when that pilot aired. I was like, sorry, bye. Right. And then literally had to come back a little bit. And Voyager, the same thing. I'm like, really? No. And then slowly got drawn back. And so, you know, but over the years, I got to admit, I got, when more I got involved with my career, sure. my career was starting to take off. I watched less and less television, you know, and so I kind of drifted away a little bit. And it so, wasn't 10 episode seasons. These were 26, 26 episodes. episodes. Yeah, that's a huge ass commitment. commitment. Yeah. And I just didn't have, a lot of times, I just couldn't, I didn't have a, you know, I couldn't record them back then. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I just missed them. I was too busy with doing, trying to, you know. It was a lot of work to record them back then. <laughs> what time it was. And you set your VCR <laughs> and all make that sure it the right thing. And usually never ran and you run out of tape. But, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, when, when, the, when the, when you know, when the VHS tapes started coming out, that was, I mean, like box sets of VHS tapes. That was when I first got the original series. I bought them all in all different formats or possibly imaginable. As you were starting to, you know, work in, in television, did you ever anticipate, oh, maybe one day I'll work on a Star Trek show, or was that just something that was not? I never even occurred to me. I, I never, I just, my trajectory, because my trajectory at the time was part features and part television, and I never really had settled on what I was, right. was going to end up doing, whether it was going to be television or film. And television kept up taking more and more of my time, and I kept having more success in television, where I kind of said, you know, this is where I should be. I never really imagined I would end up on a Star Trek show. It never even never occurred to me for some bizarre reason. Because by the time when ne when Next Gen was on, all I my, my, I was all about features, so I wasn't even thinking television. And so uh, you know, once I had my show, uh, Odyssey Five, that's when it kind of came 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 around, and it made sense at that time. I was like, oh, I, I can see why you know, because Odyssey Five was a kind of a hard sci-fi show, so it made sense. For, you know, I you know, I said, I, I guess I would hire me if I was brand. So when you got that call from your agent and they said oh uh, you know uh, they want to meet with you for the new Star Trek series Enterprise what was um, what was your reaction and was was there a warning that this had been a tumultuous series with a lot of you know changeover and, and that uh, you know it was it, no, no there was no warning my agents wanted me to do this mm -hmm. job uh, my agent you know they represent Brandon as well so they were like I'm sure they were told get find, find me a writer so right. they were like Go in there and, and do this, and and uh, you know they, they 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 said it was a great gig, and it actually ultimately was. It was it wasn't tumultuous when I was there. Right, but it, things had settled down. Well, things had settled down, and you know, um, Brandon was already cleaning, you know, getting rid of the people he didn't like, and so by the time I got there, it was relatively. It was very hard at first, but it was relatively. Uh, it re got relatively, you know, fun. Now, did you come in the beginning of third season? So they were already beginning planning the um, planning the season long arc. Yeah, there had already been when I met with Brandon, he pitched me the whole Zindi arc. Right. And what was your what was sort of your response uh, in terms of doing something somewhat more serialized, an arc? Uh, you know, it was very. I mean, Deep Space Nine had sort of toyed with it, mm -hmm. but. Uh, you know, Star Trek, which had been a standalone show for the most part, hadn't really done that. You know, what was sort of your reaction when when Brandon was sort of laying this out for you? What the plan was? I was, you know, I remember being a little disappointed. I thought the idea was cool, but a little disappointed. One of the things I I, I, I was looking forward to doing on Star Trek was coming up with episode ideas, standalone episodes, mm -hmm. fun concepts, sci-fi concepts that I could explore. And so when it became a season-long arc, it was like, oh, well, I guess I won't be doing that. I guess it'll be more, you know one story which we'll be doing pieces of so it was it seemed a little bit less interesting but it, you know also interesting at the same time I, li I liked the, the concept it was kind of fun you know the, the idea you know kind of a, it was a 9-11 you know 
uh, allegory in a sense. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I kind of signed on to the idea of, you know, Brandon's, uh, Brandon's wanted to kind of make the show darker and more gritty because it was a little, you know, perceived as a little kind of stayed. So, you know, I was all for that. thought it was interesting. Interesting way to go. And when you met with Brandon, did you also have to meet with Rick or was that so? No. No, I didn't meet with Rick till later. Yeah. And what were your impressions, you know, sort of, you know, of, of Rick? Was there much um, in the way of sort of bringing him along with this idea of making it dark? Because he'd always been, you know, mm -hmm. the protector of the Roddenberry ethos, right. the famous bust with the, you right. know, evil. So, you know, was on his desk. No, I, I actually, all those conversations happened before I got there. There was no, he was on board. This was the season. Right. He had written the, they had written the pilot, I think, already. So they were, they were already, by the time I came on, they were, you know, it was, the trajectory was already, you know, going. So um, he was, you know, he was fully, fully committed. I really loved Rick. I got along great with Rick. I had a great time with him, and I know a lot of other Star Trek writers, you know, had their issues. And, right. But I really, I really had a great time with Rick. I thought he was funny. I enjoyed meeting with him. I enjoyed getting notes from him. You know, I guess he, he and I he kind of had the same sarcastic kind of outlook. And so we kind of, uh, you know, kind of had fun together. Well, you know, the thing about Rick is obviously it was a sort of untraditional role. I mean, here he was a non-writing producer mm -hmm. who had as much power as he did on a show. Right. You know, some time utilized for very good. But, you know, a lot of people chafed under sort of the strictures like, Writers were not encouraged to come to set or cross pollinate mm -hmm. with other, you know, the art yeah. department, and 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 it did seem to a certain extent that was an attempt to protect sort of his power base rather than do what was best for the show. Right. I mean, well, I would argue this. I, I would say maybe, but but you know what? He he also had a very creative. I mean, he had he had a certain, he was he was all he was following a creative vision. His creative vision. This is what Star Trek should look like. So. Uh, to put it in the best light, it's not that I need to protect my power base. It's more like, this is what I want the shuttle to be and look like and sound. And I'm in charge of that's what I'm going to do. Any 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 person running a show would do the same thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they yeah, would want yeah. it to be. I had on my own Showtime series, I had issues with writers who wanted to do something different and make it more comical here. I'm like, I'm like no, this is what it's going to be. And I said, don't go talk to the actors. Right. I don't want it to be this. I want it to be this. And so, to put it in the best light, I, and I don't know, maybe Rick was just protecting his power base, but uh, the, the guy I saw was someone who actually was very, was very um, uh, insistent that it be good. He wanted it to not be cheesy, he wanted it to be as good as it can be, he had very specific notes, he'd think, oh, you give him an idea, and he's like, oh no, that's terrible. It wasn't like, no, that's not part of the vision. I mean, that's, that's not part of the you know the what I, my power. But it was more like, oh no, I don't, I don't, I don't like that. I don't mm -hmm. think we should do that. And right. by the way, many times he would come up with great ideas to save our asses in story. And he's a great idea guy. Um, so I think uh, and, you know, uh, uh, you know, and I've I've read interviews. There's some writers who are just like they come up a, a come up with anybody who has a, a different opinion who's on top of them they immediately assume they're the villain and I got to protect my my integrity and all this stuff and some of it's found in other sometimes it's it's it, you know it's a little bit of like you know a little posturing mm -hmm. you know it's like I'm I'm a, you know like I'm a, I'm a creative genius and how dare you interfere with my words um, not everybody deserves that you know there you you are this is a collaborative industry uh, and uh, you know I've never I don't. I don't. I, you know, I, most of the writers who are like that are, the, are, you know, usually tend to be the, the, at least what I've found, are the ones with the most problems. You know, it's always an exception, 
there's there's geniuses. But the most right the writers who I found in this business who are, who believe that their word, you know, whatever they write comes handwritten, you know, is dictated by God, are usually the ones who who who, who need need the most help. It's the ones who are running around. The the, the best writers I've met are the a lot of them are times are running around going, I can't make this work. This sucks. Can we talk this through? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't. I you know I, I guess I'm just speaking about my relationship with Rick that I thought. Uh, it was a good one, and Rick had, you know, was very, by the way, very supportive about everything we did in season four and season three. He was open to it. Sometimes we had to convince him. Right. I had to go in and pitch, and I would pitch, and you know, and and you know, he was like, eh, but he finally, you know, very often he would he would come around. So um, I found it to be a very, you know, good relationship. I've had much worse relationship with with not with with non-writing producers mm-hmm. since then. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my I guess just by extension. You did something that no one else was really able to do on the show, which was to sort of this love letter to the original Star Trek. Right. And there had always been resistance, even up until Sarek, right. to ever do anything that touched on. How how did that happen? I mean, how did were you able to pull that off where everyone else failed? I mean, in fact, you know, a lot of people would not even want to talk about being fans of the original because, like, Pillar or whatever would, right. you know, sort of mock them for it. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I just I right just, time, right place. I guess I, I just went in and said, "This is what I think we should do for the last season." They, you know, they called. You know, they were season three ended and and the ratings were really low, and they didn't know whether they were coming back or not. And uh, they got an order. It was like a slightly reduced order. And uh, Brandon said, "You're running the show. You know, do it. Basically, you know." Let's figure out what you want to do. And I think I had already pitched in what I th- thought it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I went in with Rick and, and, and told him what we wanted to do. And he was, he was very excited about the whole thing. You know, and I, you know, and I was a little bummed because I got left with the old, you know, Scott Bakula in, 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 in World War II. Right, the cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. I was right. like, oh, my God. Listen, for a while there, Rick was, Rick was pitching, let's do the whole season in, 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 in World War II. <laughs> and I that at that point I was like, all right, well I can't, I'm not doing this. I might have to leave. I'm not doing a season in World War Two. The old Ain't happening. The old sci-fi chestnut. Did it work so well in Galactica nineteen eighty? Oh my god. <laughs> so, you know, and even those first two episodes that were just gonna happen in, in back in time in World War Two and I pitched the alternate universe. You know, at least interesting to me, mm-hmm. where you're t- at least telling a world where, you know, the, the Nazis had actually occupied you know, Eastern United States, which at least made, to me made it okay. Well, that that I can I can I find interesting. There's still K. Dick kind of thing. I, yeah, I love all that stuff. And so, so from that point, and I said oh, we'll do two, and then we'll I want to do other stuff. I want to do this whole this sort of cool stuff. And he drip is like, okay, okay, you do it. You know, do it. Now, when did you come up with the idea to do these sort of triptychs where you can amortize your costs over the course of three episodes. Because, I mean, it's amazingly effective. It's the first time the show really started to have some scope. And, yeah, sure. You know, so much more. The yeah. stories got really interesting. And well, I, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I said, you know, because they had done the season-long arc, and I said, we're not going to do that again, but I said, let's do mini-arcs. I don't remember when that idea came to me, but I knew we wanted, I wanted, for instance, we were talking about the, and this is probably with the Reeve Stevens I came on or what have we were talking about doing I wanted to do sweeping Vulcan episodes. The first thing was like the Forge and those episodes. I really wanted to do kind of a big... I thought that there was an interesting opportunity with the Vulcans. You know, the Vulcans that, that Rick and Brandon had set up were very different from the Vulcans that we remember from the original series. And I thought there was a great opportunity to do an episode which bridged those two cultures. 
and to tell a story about you know how they had foundered from the original teachings and all that. And but that occurred. You know, that felt to me like a sweeping Dune-like epic. You know mm-hmm. that we weren't going to do in one episode. So, but I didn't want to do it the whole season either. So I said, let's just do these three episode arcs. And I, my fantasy was, you know, someday somebody will cut them together and do a little features, mini enterprise features. Um, and from that point on, that was we we just jumped onto that. You know, it helped. It wasn't really come up with the amortized costs. That wasn't the original plan, although it helped. Right. The original plan was just to tell big, you know, big Sprawl. larger arcs, right, larger right. stories that we couldn't tell in you know forty two minutes now, which is what episodes are, and and we didn't want to be hands do the whole season. So we settled on this, and um, and we just started plotting out you know the season that way. We let's do this story. Let's do the. You know the uh, the augment story and all that, and so, and so um, it became a great way to do it. Right, and then you also wanted to do something initially with Bill, with Shatner. Oh yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about the history, how that came about, and sort of ultimately why it never materialized. We had, um, and I don't know which came first, whether the Reeve Stevens had a story idea. This was a Reeve Stevens had a concept, which was a really cool idea, and. Maybe I think it might have been I was pushing to get Shatner on. I was I was like you know let's do let's get Shatner on let's get Shatner on and Rick was like okay we, we can call him and Reece Stevens had a cool idea, which was basically based on, um, the original mirror you know mirror mirror episode, where the Tantalus field remember that thing where yeah, people would vanish. The idea was that people actually didn't die, that they were transported to a pocket universe, and so in theory. The, the, the James T. Kirk, well, Tiberius Kirk from the Mirror Universe would have ultimately wound up there as a victim of his own Tantalus field because Spock from that episode had been given kind of, at the end of that episode, yeah. good Kirk gives Spock, you know, there's Access. a device in my room. So you, you can speculate. So anyway, you have this pocket universe where Tiberius Kirk and a number of other, un, you know, unsavory individuals from from the Mirror Universe are there, kind of like a prison colony in a way. And, and our ship, Enterprise, uh, because the, the pocket universe exists in and out, you know, in its own time space, accidentally penetrates it, and so it becomes Tiberius Kirk finds a way to get the fuck out of here, and he's, he's going to take over our ship. So it would have been a you know Archer against evil Tiberius Kirk was the main concept. Fantastic, and it could have been Kirk. You know, he he would have been there for many years, so it would have been Shatner at, at you know at an advanced age or whatever. So we had we pitched this to Rick. He thought it was great. And so let's have lunch with Shatner. We had lunch with Shatner, Rick, Brandon, and myself. We pitched it to him. He thought it was great. It was very pleasant. He was very excited. You know, for a while there, we had to, Brandon and I had to help him show him how to use his cell phone. I remember he was having trouble, but he was like, it was like Kirk trying to figure out how to use his cell phone. He was like, I gotta make it work. It's not working. What am I gonna do? And so we were like, yeah, we finally got it to work. So after lunch, it was all pleasant, and I know Bill made a comp. You know, so. One comment, as we were leaving, he goes, you know, this is going to cost you. <laughs> and, Rick, and Rick was like, uh, yeah, 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 laughing. But ultimately what happened was that, you know, Paramount, did a, they did a study, a survey on would bringing back Shatner, I don't know who they asked or how they conducted this thing, raise ratings enough to warrant the amount of money he wanted, which was considerable. By the way, it's not that considerable today because we actually just paid Kiefer that amount of money on 24 and other things, so, you know. So it wasn't like insane amount of money, by the way. I just point that out. He wasn't asking like for some crazy-ass sum. It was a hefty sum, but it was not nuts. And Paramount just decided, nope, 
You know, they had already decided this was the last season, we're going to move on, so why bother trying to do anything really exciting on this, mm-hmm. you know, on this season? And that's what happened. Yeah, I did a picture with Bill uh, Free Enterprise and uh, his manager. If you want King Kong, you got to pay for King Kong. <laughs> yeah, Bill wants to get paid. Yeah. You know, God bless him. It's all about it. the money. He's not right. Now, again, I, again, I stress, he was not, I was actually, when, he, when I heard the sum, I was like, that's it? That's what they're going crazy about? Because mm-hmm. it wasn't insane. And it would have been a great piece of, you know, Star Trek, you know, uh, uh, footage to have. You know, two episodes, would have, it would have made a lot of money and it wouldn't have hurt them at all. Yeah. What are you going to do? Uh, you know, they, they, they just, they, they don't, they, at the time, they didn't really give a shit right, sure. about Star Trek. Because during last season, and in fact, um, that brings me to the whole idea, Star Trek had always been left alone because it was first one syndication mm-hmm. and fledgling networks, everybody's like, oh, that's Star Trek. These people, they know the Star Trek and they're right. worried about their prestigious show that lasts two episodes. So, but, you know, there's been a lot made of the fact that the network was taking a lot more interest. There were a lot more network notes, and there was a lot more interference. Is is that true? I mean, is that something you were finding at all? Nope. They had tried when the ratings sagged. I think they tried to kind of insert themselves and 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 come up with reasons. You know, come up with you know notes. I remember one note, and I remember who it came from was to bring on a boy band yeah. to play on Star Trek. Brandon knows that one. He got that note. But there was stuff like that. But you know, Rick was just nope. I'm going to do what I want. Mm-hmm. And nobody, you know, interfered with them. Ultimately, there right. may, they may have caterwauled, and there was notes. And I remember there was when I when I came on season four, there were uh, some executives took me to lunch, and they were trying to, you know, kind of insert themselves a little more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't remember if Rick found out about it and, and whatever. There wasn't a big to do about it, but it was it was like they were quickly shut down. Mm-hmm. It wasn't we, they weren't gonna you know give notes um, so there might have been feeble attempts but no there was no interference nothing they may have tried but nothing nothing really happened right what did you find the biggest challenges of writing for Star Trek I mean you know a lot have been said about you know obviously you have to mitigate conflict it's the Roddenberry universe all this you know what was the challenges for, for you and, and you know did you immediately find yourself comfortable or was there a little bit of you know Training no, I found myself comfortable. We were. I, I was. I wasn't. I, I. I never wrote in the Roddenberry. I mean, when I came on, it was the Zindi arc, yeah. and they were. It was conflict, and people. You know, there was people were. Had, you know, yeah. Bakula was. You know, Archer was torturing people in 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 in, in, in you know in the uh, in 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 the airlocks. Right, for God's right, right. So it was not the same Star Trek that I. You know, that other people. You know, came came on to, and so I. Uh, I didn't find myself. You know, really butting heads against it at all. I, I, I was fairly comfortable. Were you surprised how controversial? Obviously, you dealt with the whole torture debate later yeah, as well. well. It was interesting. <laughs> yeah. What, what, were you surprised at how much attention that got? Because it did get a fair amount beyond the, the usual right. Trek site. I mean, you know, the, the, oh, you know, Scott Bagel is torturing people. I mean, yeah. it was very much in the cultural zeitgeist at the time. Yeah. No. No. I know. And and that was you know I I kind of. Uh, I was a little surprised. I, you know, I, I thought it was kind of a, it was a fairly mild torture scene. I mean, he was—you got the impression he wasn't really going to kill the guy, or at least I never thought he was going to really hurt the guy. And I, I think it was a question of stakes. I mean, he's protecting his planet, and what are the lives of four billion people against? By the way, this wasn't even a nice guy. This is a thug pirate, you know, who he was just depriving of oxygen enough to dr- knock him out. So it wasn't like it was. But at the same time, it was totally against kind of the Star Trek ethos. Uh, but again, this was a prequel. 
people weren't the same as they were, aren't the same as they were in the original series and, and beyond. You know, that's one of the things I tried to do with, uh, you know, Demons and Terra Prime, was to say that mankind ain't quite there yet. There's still residue of, of the original, you know, uh, passions and prejudices. Um, uh, and so it, I guess it didn't strike me as overly nuts mm -hmm. when he did that. Um, I could see where people would get angry, though, because it was a little... Even I watched that scene recently, and I was like, ooh, wow, I'm not sure I want to see this on Star Trek. So I understand the gut reaction. And uh, ultimately, I think what, what probably would have been more fun is to have him do something like that in a more clever way without actually doing it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, because I think if I were to criticize it at all, it felt like Bacula, Bacula's character kind of let it get away with himself. You know, there was a lot of talk about making Bakula a stronger captain. That he, in the first two seasons, was indecisive, and he was, you know, but a lot of that is in the, I, I felt, was in the situations he, he was placed in. For example, there's an whole episode where he's obsessed with finding about what's creaking on his floor. That doesn't, you, you know, it's not Bakula's performance. Right. He's told to get on his hands and knees and look for a, for a, for a, for a sound. Right. That's never going to be, he ain't never going to come off as a heroic captain. And so in season three, it was we're going to toughen him up. But in my opinion, you don't toughen him up by making him hysterical. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. running around yeah. screaming at people, and you make him weaker. Yes, a weaker quiet strength. I mean, but the quiet strength is the guy who was able to govern his passions and make him the guy who, for example, if I were to do that scene now, I would probably have Trip be the one who took the bull by the horns. On, you know, with, against Archer's orders, put the guy in the chamber and had Bakula come in and stop him at the last minute. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, whether that would have been a ruse or not, because what would have been interesting is they could have been playing good cop, bad cop. But I would have preferred to see Bakula's, because in the series, in the, episode, the, the season was set up as Trip being the one who was, I, I want to kill these motherfuckers. I mean, that was the last episode of the previous season. You know, whatever we do there, we're, gonna, we're going in there to kick, kick ass, right? Yes, we are. So that was a perfect setup to have Trip be the one to lose his shit, and Bakula be the one to have to hold, rein him in. Okay. You know, if I was pitching that, going through the season now, I would almost, I would almost argue for an interesting arc where Trip, you know, leads almost a mutiny against Archer for being too weak. You know, do a kind of Crimson Tide. You know, where Trip ultimately comes back to his senses. But that would have been interesting, at least have the, you know, the characters, I think both would have been stronger. Trip lost his someone he loved, Archer was trying to do the right thing, but he was ultimately in the right. Um, so I guess I went, I went on a story spin because of this idea, but, you know, Archer, the guy, Archer putting the guy in the, in the airlock, I, I guess what I'm, it's a long way of saying that I do think they're, they're, the, the story problems with that are, are uh, you know, you can make a good argument for saying that was not probably the best way to play that. It's interesting and what you propose, it, you know, 10 years later or whatever. Yeah, so it's easy. Yeah. Hindsight is 2020. <laughs> is, uh, you know, it, it takes it more in the spirit of the, tr the original triptych, you know, Kurt right. Spock and McCoy right. as well, yeah. which is obviously, you know, something right. that worked. But in making Bakula so, you know, so angry and it, you, Trip kind of became uh, someone, his point of, point of view's got lost. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, Trip's point of view got lost along the season. His, 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 uh, Feeling for 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 losing his loved one was kind of muted because our Archer was so so nuts, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. And I don't even know what Dominic's point of view was over the thing. I don't even remember. Was there? Yeah, I was going to ask you about like sort of the characters. Were there characters you gravitated to in terms of writing? Were there characters you would have liked to have seen just gone? You know, I mean, just 
weren't really helping the ensemble at all? Not particularly. I, I, I felt the ensemble was, was, was fine. I mean, I think they, they just had their, they had their, some had their, were more limited than others. I, I just think they were, that's what I think the whole thing with Dominic in Section 31, we were just trying to give these guys attitudes and, mm-hmm. and try to have them, you know, define them in, in, you know, with their own play, what had been set up and give them, you know, uh, real, you know, arcs that kind of made them stand out as characters. Mm-hmm. Trip and, and, and T'Pol had been set up as a romance, so I, we played that through in Demons and then through the season and mm-hmm. all that, so there was no, there was no you know. Uh, uh, it's interesting, you had this balance between the, the, you know, the xenophobia, you know, the darkness of these alien-hating people, but at the same time, you were building up the Federation. So with the cynicism, there was also this optimism. Sure. So with Star Trek. Yeah. But, but that's what I thought was fun. I mean, it may, because in any kind of, whenever you're in any, any like, U.S. history, you know, people who are railing now against, you know, the... There was an article recently about some woman who was yelling at her neighbor because she was flying a Mexican flag. You know, it became like, you're in America, aren't you? But, you know, you go back to, you read newspapers from 19, the 1900s, and the same people, you know, Italians were flying the Italian flag, and, mm-hmm. and Germans were flying, I'm sure there were Americans saying, you you know, what are you, where are you? Where, what country do you think you're? I'm just saying, it always accompanies an influx of, of the other. And, and that's what the inspiration was for those episodes, is like, if the you know if the world had just opened up to you know alien presence and alien there would certainly be you know humans who were saying is this Earth instead of saying is this America you'd be saying is this Earth or where am I living I walk down the streets and my kids accosted by some thing you know what is this world becoming to what kind of par- what kind of virus virus you know viral pathogens are being brought over by these creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't studied this. It's always under the guise of, you know, we haven't studied this, you know what I'm saying? So I just thought it was a fascinating avenue to, be, to, to, to tell. But well, let me ask you, in terms of the allegory, I mean, obviously in the 60s, you know, Star Trek gets a lot of acclaim for, you know, how progressive it was, but also how it was talking about issues no one else could, right. and, you know, the Swiftian kind of Gulliver's mm-hmm. travel for But by the time you do Enterprise, you know, television has changed. Yeah, I mean, no, no, you yeah. can deal with these issues head on. So was the allegory important to you? You know, was it something... Only in the sense of that it made, to me it was reversed. I mean, yes, you don't need Star Trek to deal with these issues. But what I did think was interesting was it made, if you, in dealing with these issues, it made the world of Star Trek more grounded and more believable. And something, because I think science fiction needs to have an element that, you, that hits you in the gut and makes you identify. That's what, to me, in the original Star Trek was so... Um, eye-opening was that here was a world that a science fiction world as opposed to lost in space which was made so that you can actually believe it the idea of the military you know the the naval just the naval (coughs) terminology you immediately were like oh this is real I buy this this is this is a functioning system and so it made it grounded by by doing that little simple thing by injecting you know the naval you know uh, 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 hierarchy and you know the names of the ships and all that immediately made you that touchstone with reality made you accept it. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, granted, it was done in Forbidden Planet earlier, but whatever. It, you know, so so my my point is is that to me the you know the the idea of you know Paxton and the xenophobia was just a way to make the Star Trek world and those two episodes more accessible to to uh, or more you more at a gut level. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're watching, you're like, oh yeah, I get this. Well, you know, it's funny. People often gloss over the influence of Forbidden Planet, but clearly Forbidden Planet's a huge influence. Totally. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, not badly. I mean, yeah, sure. Every, right. Everything steals that's from everything else. And and you know, it was Forbidden Planet. I remember it was a whole naval thing. I mean, the cook, they had the cook and all this stuff. The cook and <laughs> yeah. the robot, you know, the robot, and, and the Nielsen. And, but uh, but so um, but that's what made it so real. I think helped make it so real. And you know, it was a real universe. When when you sort of. What, what would you say the difference between your room and Brandon's room was? You know, the way you guys ran a room. You know, the um, difference between third and fourth season. Other than the snacks. <laughs> that, that people were allowed to eat, I presume. I don't know. Was there restrictions on food? In I don't know if by third season there was, but, you know, that's the, the stories that come out. I mean, it's like, oh, you, know, you can't crunch bags. And Brandon did Brandon's that. a little more anal retentive yeah. and a little bit more exacting. And, and you know, he is... Um, you know, he's he's got his own way of doing things. He's um, he. I'll tell you one big thing that was different was that Brandon used to. We would kind of talk through the stories, and then Brandon would get into a room with the writer who's going to write the episode, and uh, a, a, you know, a, a story assistant, and he would dictate the outline onto a you know, as a story assistant would write it out, beat by beat. So the writer wouldn't write the outline. Brandon wrote the outline, which by the way, an astounding feat. I couldn't do that. I mean, it was really amazing. And he would dictate the whole outline, and that was what the writer went off and wrote. My feeling was that once you beat out an episode, what I did was, like, the writer would go off and write his own outline, or her outline. They should be, they, they, it's their episode. They're the ones who should see the outline through and store, flesh it out. They're the ones who have to write the script. So I don't know if that helped or not, but I, I didn't, I wasn't about to stand in front of a screen and dictate an outline that a writer was supposed to be writing. That's how I've done it on every show. Every show here, the writer's going to write their episodes, We'll beat it out together, line by line, story card, you know, card by card. But you go off and flesh it out. Um, and the, as far as the room goes, I, 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 Brandon, when I was there, Brandon didn't have much of a room, frankly. The writers would meet on their own and kind of uh, come up with ideas and stories, and they would be pitched to Brandon, and Brandon would either yes or no. So there wasn't a working room that I was in, part of. It changed, and a lot. Brandon and I worked together a lot because he once he he, he accepted he he liked my, my work, and so he's like, all right, I guess you know this is great. We worked together a lot, so my room was different. In fact, in the sense that there actually was a room. We all got together and would come up with stories and beat them out. And the Reeves Stevens were wonderful; they were a great addition. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was nobody. You know, in, in season three, you know, there was Sussman, there was. Um, one other guy who's who's really terrific. Um, fuck, I forgot his name. Chris Black. Chris Black was great, and um, I think that was kind of it as mm -hmm. far as the writers go. Right. You know, I think Goodman had just come on or was just leaving or right. whatever. So, uh, but Goodman was great too. But he was, I think, he was leaving to go do animation or something. Yeah. So yeah. it wasn't many people writing. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't much enough. There wasn't a lot of bodies for a room, if you follow what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we had. In season four, I brought in a bunch of writers. I brought the Reeve Stevens in, and then we had Chris Black had left, unfortunately, but we had Sussman, the Reeve Stevens, myself, and I had brought in Alan Brenner and oh, right. uh, a couple of other writers who um, a couple worked out, you know. Oh, and Andre was there. Andre was there, right. So then we had a room. We'd all sit in my office and, and you know, and be a room. So the Brandon room, I kind of, at least when I was there, wasn't really in, in existence. Brandon did a lot of it himself. Brandon's one of these guys, and there's different showrunners who run differently. Brandon does a lot of stuff on his own. He likes to do, you know, he'll, he'll take this and go off and run and, and do it and write it or beat it out in that one. Me, I like to, you know, have the person who's actually doing it do it, if possible. If they can't do it, then I do it. I mean, I ended up rewriting a lot of stuff. But, 
So that's kind of the difference. Mm-hmm. I don't know if one way is better or not. How did Brennard get involved? I mean, Brennard goes way back. I mean, he worked yeah. on Buck Rogers. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Brennard, I had worked with Brennard on, I, when I was working on Outer Limits. Uh, the first season of Outer Limits, he wrote two episodes which I thought were fantastic. And I had kept them in mind ever since. And then on Odyssey 5, uh, he came on to write and was great. I believe he came on to write on Odyssey 5. Am I conflating it with... Uh, I believe I brought him on Odyssey 5. I'm having a, a mind. <laughs> but anyway, so then, and then I brought him on to Enterprise in season four of Enterprise. In season three, I couldn't because I wasn't running the room. But on season four, you know, I brought in Alan and I brought in, uh, there was another guy who was actually going to replace, he was the guy who lost the job to me. Um, and I've forgotten his name, but he didn't work out either. So um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I can get you the name. But he's someone who I ended up having to, to rewrite. Right. Uh, you know, it just, didn't, it just didn't, didn't work out. So when you sort of set the tone, I mean, as the showrunner, the captain, I mean, you know, what did you tell your staff your goal was for season four, knowing that it was a good chance that this would be the final season? Obviously, you wanted to pay homage to the original right. structure. So what, what was sort of the marching orders you gave your staff? Well, go back, let's find cool ideas that are, you know, that have some tie, some, you know, uh, relevance with the original series. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's use this as a prequel. Let's make a prequel. And let's have fun. We were all, the Reef Seasons were huge Star Trek fans, so was Andre and Sussman. We were all original series fans. So let's have fun. And, 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 and do stories that we will really enjoy as all being fellow fans. That's how the Mirror Universe stuff came mm-hmm. out because the Mirror Universe uh, to us was a particular, because we could do anything on those and we could go, you know, do as much fun fan stuff as we wanted. That was, a, that was, a, that was an interesting uh, argument to get Rick to change the title sequence for those episodes. I had to argue my way into that one, and that was inspired. That was a really yeah. inspired no, choice. No, it's great. I, I, that's why I, I and I always and, and and to use the footage from the from 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 uh, first contact as the opening. That was a you know an idea that we had I, I had kind of fallen in love with, and so that one wasn't so hard. He kind of loved that, but the, he was hesitant to change the title. But I said, I, you know, we want this to to look as if these episodes came from the mirror universe. So let's you know, and so finally he just signed on and had a great fun with it. That's why I said, I mean, Rick was never, you know, you might have to just argue a little bit without mm-hmm. getting indignant that you were being questioned, you know? Right, right, right. And uh, so uh, so those were, you know, those, so that was basically, you know, I said, let, let's just do stuff that we as fans want to see. I would be remiss, by the way, if I didn't ask, because I've asked everyone this. So where were you on the opening titles? You know, the song... I was neutral. <laughs> I wasn't crazy about them, but I also didn't think they were as bad as everyone thought they were. I mean, I, I was neutral. Mm-hmm. It was. They were not great. I didn't like the song that much. But you know, it's it's hard to say after a while you get used to it. You know what I'm saying? You're like they become when you work on the show, they become your opening titles, right, and exactly. you're like, well, don't don't criticize my opening titles. So you kind of embrace them in a strange way. I think the first time I heard them, I was I you know I was like, huh. And you were there the season where it finally became Star Trek. Because for the first couple right. of seasons, it was Enterprise. Right. That was like, odd. That was odd. I didn't really register that one that much. I didn't really care that much. So when you were started, started identifying the episodes that you wanted to semi-sequelize or sequelize, you know, how did you sort of come upon, oh, we'll do the Organians from Mary Mercy, or we'll do, you know, Mary Mer, or we'll do, uh, you know... Well, it was just basically, it was a lot of sitting around and throwing out ideas. The Organians was the Reeve Stevens. That was their baby. 
and I was less keen on that one to be honest. But uh, um, but that's what they you know they really wanted to do that one. So it was like all right, all right, guys. And, and and uh, but I really wanted to do the Vulcan arc. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to do the augment story. That was those were very passionate ones. And the, the the whole Klingon thing stemmed from the augment thing, where it's just an idea that I had. It's like, what if, you know, they get a hold of one of these, you know, the augment DNA and try to create super soldiers, and so they end up losing their ridges, which to me was like, you can either inter interpret that as where the ridgeless Klingons came from or not. Right, it's right, not. Right. I, we never said that's where they are. Right. It was just an interesting. You can accept it or not, but there they are. They're 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 violent and they're cool. And if you want, you can imagine a Klingon Empire where these things took power at one point. You know, and where ultimately, you know, but but of course the continuity goes all all over the map because you saw the earlier Klingons. Right. But whatever. But anyway, so that was a fun. That was an interesting thing. It, and it, by the way, that wasn't about ridgeless Klingons. It was a, it was a whole about you know it was about Star Trek, about, about the Enterprise being, you know, uh, it was about this technology, just this DNA technology getting out of control. Um, so it was you know those the ideas you know kind of sprung one from the other and and the demons arc I I, I had always thought that the series should come back to Earth for its ending. Mm -hmm. You know the the Paxton and I, and I thought that the xenophobia thing was a great way to end it and to see a, a council you know where, where 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 Archer kind of defends the you know uh, lays out the views of but you know that we still have things to work out but this is what our you know our, our view of, of of the future should be see the word the beginnings of the proto the proto uh, you know um, federation so those were the big touchstones I knew we wanted to to do. Mm -hmm. And where did the Brent cameo come from? Was that just a natural outgrowth? Or? No, that was actually Rick said Brent is open to doing one. Mm -hmm. Originally, that character was going to be something else. I don't remember who, what, oh, was it Colonel Green? It was some character from an early mm -hmm. season or whatever, earlier, and I don't, I don't remember now. So, um, so it might have been Colonel Green from the Savage Curtain. You really it might have been, but we ultimately, I, for some reason, I've always been obsessed with Colonel Green. <laughs> Don't ask me why. I finally got it in, in Demons, you know, or Paraprime, whichever one, where uh, Colonel Green, Colonel Green was what uh, inspired Paxton. Um, <laughs> well, it's always the Law of Threes, you know. It's like, oh, the great leaders of Earth, you know. It's like Washington, Lincoln, Colonel Green. Colonel Green, you know, Willetta, whatever. I was, I was, I was, he always made an impression on me. I'm like, who's this guy? What did he do? Right. Yeah. What did he really do? Um, so, uh, so I don't remember the, it was, an, it was another character. And then Rick said, you know, uh, he wants to do one. And so we retooled it right. for for that and he you know he was great and then you know when you decided to do the mirror story completely said the mirror universe which is great because I was a huge fan of Deep Space Nine but I don't think they did the mirror universe very well right. you guys just nailed the mirror universe right. and tell me about the challenges there obviously you know you're building the, the original sets right. it's, it's not a cheap show to do no. and, um, but it also brought sort of the characters to life getting to play yeah. those now I remember Rick commenting. My he's never he was looking at the dailies and all that. And he was he was he was just commenting on how how great the actors were doing these parts and how much they had come to life and how fun they were having and you know I wish we could translate it to the to the regular universe. Um, uh, so Rick was all was all into it and uh, you know the challenge. There was a, those were expensive episodes, but again we amortized them. Yeah. We did them. That, that's where the two part you know the two I think it was a two part right yeah it was a two part yeah, two helped. Right. helped. Um, so we were able to do those big things because we were amortizing over, you know, 
Did you oh, talk much to the DP about that? Like you want a different look for it or anything? Well, like that? we we wanted the original series look. Yeah, mm -hmm. you you know you have to like this, Marvin. You have to like this, like the original series, the, the lights and I mean with the with the high key and you know and the colors and all that stuff. And he went all out. I mean, it looked fantastic. Do you think in retrospect maybe the show should have done that from the beginning in a sense? You know that retro throwback kind of. I, I you know if it was going to be a prequel to the original show, that maybe it should have evoked the look and the aesthetic more of the original. Possibly. I actually thought it would have been more fun to go more, more rough, rougher with it, more more crimson tide. Mm -hmm. Meaning there was no captain sitting in a chair staring in a big view screen. Meaning the ship was really a little bit more claustrophobic. It was less, it was less um, comfortable, you know. And there were there were not big view screens. You had to look in little monitors and stuff. And people were gathering on a different area, kind of what Battlestar, frankly, ultimately mm -hmm. did, which was you know a little. It's kind of interesting. I think I, I would have gone. I'm not sure I would have gone to try to rep replicate the retro of it. I think that might have been a little bit off-putting and a little bit self-conscious. Mm -hmm. But I would have, if you were going to do a prequel like that, I would have been more interested in seeing something really rough, where we were, and, and more, more, more a sense of we. This was our first ship out there, because the, you know the thing was, and in, in they're like, well, this is the prequel. The Enterprise is going in deep space, but there were characters who had always already been on board. Who you know, tra Travis. I mean, not to Travis. Uh, uh, yeah, Travis Mayweather had already been to other planets and had been on warp speed, you know, other starships. And, and I'm like, well, where's the sense of like we're going where no man has gone before? I would have gone like this is the first warp ship to leave our system. I mean, mm -hmm. scary. There's nobody out there, and with a ship that doesn't have the you know all the amenities and and the view screens and stuff, and really stick to a kind of a submarine. Dark, space, yeah. scary, you know, what's out there and stumbling. What Balance and Terror was. I'm sorry? What Balance and Terror was. What Balance and Terror was. I would love, you know, Balance and Terror still was just, you know, tremendous. And, you know, and I just want to add those space battles on Balance of Terror and, and a lot of the were much more realistic than I think the space battles are in various shows. And I'll tell you why. On those, on Balance of Terrors, Terror, they would fire each other without, they weren't actually visible on their screens. They were so far away, which is what these kind of super weapons would allow you to do. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, these ships are like literally on top of each other. They're firing, and I'm like, F-16s nowadays don't even see the targets they're shooting at. Right, right. So in, 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 this, in this century, these ships should be firing each other without even seeing what they, without even making physical, physical. That's why I thought Balanced Terror was so interesting. Just, you know, it was one of the reasons. You know, they were just, they never really looked at each other. I mean, they were just, you, you got a real sense that they were fighting this long distance intergalactic battle. And, uh, you know, I just, I just mind a little pet peeves. I hate when these ships have to be like right on top of each other, going beep, beep, and they're like literally, you know, next to each other. I'm like, really? You waited till now to fire? You couldn't have fired, you know, anyway. I guess <laughs> there was a lot, you know, there was somewhat controversy about the finale finale. You yes. Know? What was your feelings? Was that something you fought against, or you just sort of knew? Oh, that not at all. No, 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 not at all. I mean, I, I, my, my feeling was that the, you know, Demons and Terra Prime was the finale for Enterprise. That's why I always pictured it and envisioned mm -hmm. it, and that because we knew that it was pre evident that this was the end of the, in the long run, the eighteen-year run. So Rick and Brandon wanted to do a, an episode that paid homage not just to Enterprise but to all the series. And so that was their kind. They, you know, they 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 wanted to do what they said if it was a Valentine to yeah, the fans, right. and I wanted, to, you know, and and so that was a separate show. I had no problem with it whatsoever. 
And I liked the idea at first. I mean, I, I think it was, you know, it wasn't as great as it could have been, but again, not the, you know, this caterwauling about how horrible it was and all this. And like, really, guys? This is really, you know? Well, everybody's so hyperbolic, particularly. Well, that's what I mean. It's just like everything is like, you know, either great or horrible. Yeah, yeah. There's, There's nothing, no middle ground. You know, and I remember, and it's kind of amazing. I remember when I was on Enterprise and I just started, you know, I, I would look at some of these fan sites and there was one guy who was, his whole purpose was to kind of shit on every episode. I'm not going to name any names, but this is what he did every week. Put out a huge review shitting on these episodes. How horrible they were and this and this and that. And I finally emailed and I'm like, you know, really? They're, you know, this is, you know, and he emailed me back basically saying, you know, I'll show you how to do it. Let me come in and pitch one. <laughs> you know, my reaction was, you know, no. Yeah. When I was a fan, it would never occur to me to sit here and write shitty emails or, or letters, putting down all the work that everyone had. I mean, never, that would we, we never would have. We, we were we were in love with the show. Every once in a while, we would comment about this didn't work and that didn't work. But to, this vitriol that these people are saying, I'm like, do you really enjoy this? It's like people you see on the golf course who really hate golf. <laughs> But they're out there doing it every day. I'm like, well, if you hate Star Trek so much and everything about it, why are you doing this? Right, right. Go find something else. Go to a brony convention. Just leave us alone. I mean, it's like, why, if you don't enjoy it. So, you know, and, and it's like, yes, I can see if you're disappointed in, in, in a show and you, and, and you don't particularly like it. But there's a, there is a middle ground between it's the worst thing that's ever been done and it's destroyed Star Trek and all that, you know. And, yeah. and you know, like Enterprise got some, you know, some of this stuff was just ridiculous. Well, that's one of the things we didn't talk about, which was sort of enterprise premiered at the same time social media was becoming ubiquitous. Right, exactly. So it really was unique in that it was yeah. the first show that suffered the slings yeah, and arrows. Right, sure. slings and arrow, yeah. What oh, was wow. that like for you? I mean, and were you, were, you know, were you, are you the kind of guy who would come in and look to see what the fans were saying on uh, no. you know, the message boards? Or Every once in a while I'd check, but no, I wasn't, I wasn't that fanatical about it. I mean, every once in a while I'd check, but, but not really. How was it? Was a sense that you know it was having impact, you know, either at the network level or, or Rick and Brandon's level, that you know, dealing with that or just these are crazy fans. We're not going to. No, I don't think it had an impact. I think what what was the, as far as the negative impact on yeah. the show. Yeah. No, I think the show was a, was you know it's, it's all you know, for the network is all the ratings mm -hmm. and the fact that the last movie underperformed. Right. So there was a sense that uh, you know that the franchise was in, was waning and needed a creative. You know, boost. And by the way, I I, I predicted it when I when when I said what's going to happen. You know, they're like, when are we going to come back? And and who are they going to bring on? I said, what they're going to do is find a hotshot filmmaker to reboot the series. Mark my words. Mm -hmm. That's exactly that's what, what happened. happened. But I, by the way, that's what I would do if mm -hmm. I were Paramount. I would look for somebody who is big, who's powerful, and who has made successful properties and who's a Star Trek fan. Not that hard. There's a lot of Trek fans. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny. So, I'll ask you about that because especially since your boy Peter from Odyssey 5, you know, not only did Enterprise for you, but then more recently right. did, the, uh -huh. did the film. What, what were your feelings? You know, as a, as a Star Trek fan, as somebody who has actually worked in the trenches, mm -hmm. you know, who knows the challenges of making good Star Trek, what were your feelings about the J.J. films? Um, you know, kind of, I enjoyed them on an action movie level. Um, but the one thing I would say is that, and this is one observation I'll make, is that when we, on Enterprise, we had the, we were invited by, um, when I was, I think it was my fourth season, we were invited by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory 
to go watch <clears throat> the moment when the two landers, Mars landers, not the recent ones, but the ones before that, uh, entered the Martian atmosphere. And we were invited as because they, these guys were Star Trek fans. And, you know, I remember being in there and talking to people, and Schwarzenegger showed up, and Gore was there, Al Gore, and so it was this big community, but there was, a, there was a sense that we represented Star Trek, and it was a love of science, which, you know, um, I can't imagine scientists or a, a, a person who, wants, who loves science being inspired by the movies. It's interesting. They're a whole different thing. It's not an, there's no love of, of, of exploration, of science. It's, it's, it's action-adventure, mm -hmm. which is fine, but I think the series had another element to it, which was a little bit more interesting, a little mm -hmm. bit darker. But is that the nature, not darker, but a little bit more... But is that more. the nature of the disparity between television and movies? I mean, in a sense, none of the Star Trek movies are, well, at least I would argue, are as good as the best episodes. Uh, you're exactly right. You may, by the way, it's a very good observation. You can make that same comment about the... Uh, about um, you know the uh, the earlier movies, although I would say you know in Star Trek II there was elements. I mean, like the Genesis Project. Mm -hmm. There's elements. You see scientists at work mm -hmm. and creating things, and yeah. and then there was a real argument about whether this is a weapon or is it an art. You know, so there yeah, were big so, yeah. themes in those movies mm -hmm. that uh, you know are a little absent. Right. You know that these movies are you know are aiming for uh, you know I think a younger audience and, and you know what I would argue that probably it's, it's a smart move to make you know you want people to come in you know it was a good Star Trek's been around a long time so you want to do something different and by the way I, I think this, the best thing I love about the Star Trek movies are the cast you know the, the cast is just flawless and uh, I just think they're tremendous it's they're extremely well cast and perfect it, casting and jumping back to your cast what were um, you know you did some really interesting things with Jolene's character in that final season, season. Mm -hmm. and I would think you know the Vulcan tapestry offers so much as an old Amok Time fan. Right, right. You must have really enjoyed. Oh yeah, that. no, it was it was it was great fun. It was great fun exploring you know the lore and 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 uh, you know, you know the, the whole Kirshara and you know which a prop which I still have. I ended up with that prop somehow. But um, yeah, no, it was fun. I mean, you know, the, the whole the, the Jolene uh, the Jolene character in relation to. to to trip and home and, and bringing him to see you know, meet meet her mom and you know it was fun kind of exploring a you know a, a, a kind of a little bit lighter and darker side of her you know the fact that she she had a baby with trip was 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 I thought the logical extension of their of their you know the story arc that had been set up. It's interesting because you know previous incarnations like next generation they would never do anything that radical because we have to leave it everything in place for when we do the movies or whatever. Like right. We got to do... Yeah, we know, got to do... Out yeah, there stuff. Know, we got to do out there stuff because the movies, you know, nobody really thought there was going to be a movie. Um, so we were kind of, you know, we were pretty much open to do almost anything we wanted to do. I mean, you know, uh, it seemed that way anyway. Uh, you know, I'm sure if I pitched Killing Scott, right, right, right. which I wouldn't do, but, you know, so there were limits, but... But... Uh, was there ever any pressure about recasting that captain's role? I mean, I know... Was always gonna stick with Scott. That's yeah. We're gonna stick stick with Scott. I mean, I remember at one point we debated. I actually did debate at one point, uh, 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 actually killing Scott uh, and doing a series or doing the first time. In, you know, and, and not because Scott, you know, but because just as a way to inject an interesting dramatic situation into a season mm -hmm. where the characters now have to get used to somebody brand new coming on board. And this person would have a totally different way of doing things, a total out, different outlook, and so you would have Trip and, and 
you know, and, and the rest of the characters kind of uh, butting, butting heads against this individual, whoever he or she may be. But we decided not to, I mean, ultimately. I mean, that dynamic worked so well in Next Gen with Ronnie Cox. Yeah, uh, no, exactly, yeah. But yeah. for two episodes, I wonder right. if it would work for us. You would have ultimately had to like the guy. Right, you, yeah. can't, you can't do, you know, a guy you don't like. Or a woman, or whatever it was going to be. Uh, so you have to find someone who ultimately, you know, it's a little bit like the, the it would be a little bit like the, the shift in uh, MASH. Remember when they went mm-hmm. from... Uh, the, but they were ma- they managed to, to make those changes work. I mean, yeah, well, because well, but remember the first one, he came in, everybody distrusted him because um, he was all military. Yeah, yeah. I forget the actor's name, but he came in, the, the new guy who replaced the old guy came in and everybody hated him. They did show, but at the end, he turned out to be a, you know, a nice guy and they, they, mm-hmm. they, they had a, a, an equilibrium, but a different character. And you could do, I figured you could do the same thing with this. Start off with a character nobody liked, you know, butting mm-hmm. heads, uh, either inexperienced or overly experienced or whatever, and uh, who they end up respecting. How far did that get? Not very far. <laughs> <laughs> did you that was one where Rick was like, don't, no, don't go there. <laughs> Not going to happen. Yeah. Which I respect. I mean, that was a radical change. That was crazy. You know, I don't think it's, a, you know, that, that's a, that's a, but what I probably would have done, if we'd have known we were going for seven seasons, I might have entertained doing a, a season or part of a season where Bacula was gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We don't have to kill him, but where he's I, gone. Because I find that interesting. Interface. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you inherited the decontamination scenes. What, what, what were your feelings about the, the decontamination? I didn't like them at all. Didn't we just get rid of them? Didn't I just forget them? Did, did you sure. do that? Did you get rid of them? I, I just didn't call them. them. I just didn't do them. Yeah. I thought they were silly. I didn't like them. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, to me, it was just like, it was even so much, I mean, it was less about the uh, the obvious attempt to get, you know, hot bodies on there, but are you really, you're really going to decontaminate by spreading this gel over your body? It yeah, yeah. didn't seem like a very efficient way to decontaminate. And, yeah, in the 22nd century. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like, I would, if decontamination, I would rather have them just strip and get hit by a beam, then I'd buy, all right, that's a decontamination, but not... We got to spread jello over each other, right? I'm like, what if you missed a spot? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. Um, let me ask you: When you on Saturday news, when when you got the call, you got the news. Tell me about when you found out that Enterprise was over, and by extension, Star Trek, at least for the time being, was over. I what just remember that? I got I saw it. I actually, uh, somebody emailed me. Some. Fan, I don't remember who it was. So you didn't hear from Rick or Brandon? You heard, or the studio? No, but this was early. No, Rick, came, no, Brandon came in very. No, no. He, the, the email was, "I'm hearing rumors that Enterprise is being canceled, uh-huh. and the rumors are really strong today." Uh-huh. Well, you know, what do you know? And I said, "I don't know anything." And but sure, sure enough, when I got to work, Brandon came in and said, "You know, we're canceled." Mm. And uh, you know, but it wasn't that big. A, we all, I didn't. You saw the writing. Everybody knew the odds were that this was the last. It was kind of understood. That season four was it. We you were, were, you know, that was when you were filming uh, the uh, the filming web sequel, the Mirror Mirror mm-hmm. uh, episode. Yeah. So it wasn't a big sh- it wasn't a big shock, mm-hmm. and I don't remember a lot of tears. I mean, I'm a bit disappointed, but it, like everybody kind of knew, right? right and right. so we were just happy that we were able to uh, know it soon enough so that we can get geared the season toward the, what, what could be a you know an interesting creative end. Well, two two more questions. What had you gone a fifth season, would you like to have seen happen? What would, where would you have taken it? Well, I would have loved to have, you know, build more towards the Romulan War and explore that. I would have loved to uh, set up, continue setting up the Federation. I wanted, I love Jeffrey Combs, and I particularly wanted to bring, I wanted to find a way to bring Combs onto the bridge. 
as a character on our show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he talked about he, he, he would have been a regular yeah. rather than recurring. Habit. I wanted to make him a regular. He's great. He's tremendous. And he had such a great energy. And, uh, you know, to have him as an interspecies exchange, you know, or whatever, figure out a way to get him on the bridge, mm -hmm. would have been, I thought, would have been just like a supercharge for the season. Well, Rick had always said no antenna, but, you know, obviously <laughs> that rule got broken. But, you know, that's what I'm saying, Rick. You know, you have to just convince Rick. Rick's a good, you know, a good, you know, guy. You need sometimes that guy who says no, so you have to think it through and argue your way into it. You can't just say, antenna! I mean, you know, with Rick, it probably was no antenna, but then they figured out the cool right. way to make the movie right. expressive, so it probably led to a, a more interesting antenna. I'm, I'm so, um, so I asked you about, yeah, so when you, how you found out what the plans were for, had you done another season. So, right. yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. No, it's great. So I, I would ask you then, look, if you were ever in a position to reboot Star Trek, you know, look, it's a hypothetical, you know, uh, you know, it seems inevitable that it will happen. The 50th is coming. But, you know, if you were... And your deals with Fox, so it probably won't happen. But it will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> Not with me. Hypothetically, <laughs> let's say you were in a position where you could go back. Or, or you're just offering advice to the people who will. What, what would you like to see happen with Star Trek to make it relevant and exciting? And, you know, that same kid who turns on the TV, you know, watches it, you know, gets excited about Star Trek and right. becomes a lifelong it's fan. It's hard to say. I mean, and the problem with Star Trek is that it's, it's, the universe has been so explored. And I understand, I mean, the movies did us very smart in going back and, and starting over again and redefining a new universe because, you know, if do you go, I mean, I've heard uh, the, the ideas about the fall of the Federation and starting with that and the Enterprise kind of having to bring the Federation back. But do you really want to see a depressing kind of, you know, uh, universe where the Federation fell apart? Maybe. You know, I would maybe there's a room for a post-invasion, you know, federation where you know we we are fighting for something, but I personally miss the exploration aspect of Star Trek. And if you get into that scenario, you're immediately going away from exploration. I personally would 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 do a re-reboot. Honestly, mm -hmm. I would go back to the, to the very beginning and and kind of restart it with a whole different perspective and, and really trying to do, and maybe this calls for not doing a Star Trek, doing a whole different series, but I personally miss the exploration. I actually like a lot of the earlier episodes of season one, two, uh, you know, of, of Enterprise. I liked some of the episodes of finding new planets and new worlds and, and you know, and, and, you know, they weren't always successful, but I liked what they were attempting to do, which was, you know, this is our first time seeing this. So I would, lo I would love a series that is less focused on combat and uh, fighting and, and you know survival there'd be, there'd, be, there'd be that as well but at least leavened with uh, an aspect of exploration of mm -hmm. seeing things that we've never seen before and maybe that's taking the Star Trek world and making we, we've just discovered an, a wormhole into a into a, you know the Andromeda Galaxy a place we've never been to before so that you can open it up and see you know new visions but I think it'd be more it'd be, it'd be interesting to see you know take it you know, to kind of approach a, a fresh perspective, you know, and pick a period where Star Trek was happening, maybe find a different crew, I mean, a different, maybe even a different ship, uh, and allow it to be what it originally was going to be, which was exploring strange new worlds and, and you know, discovering ourselves in the process. It's interesting. I mean, cynicism is so in vogue. You know, so I mean, I think it's much easier to do a darker Star Trek series. Yeah, everybody. Darker is much easier. They want to take the path of least resistance. It's all, all darker is always easier. And I'm guilty as anyone who's trying to be darker. You know, 24 is pretty dark. 
But it's always easier to be darker. It's harder to be, you know, lighter, inspirational, uplifting here and there. You know, it's easier to just be dark. Kill everybody, make everybody rotten. You know, and by the way, it's in vogue now to the point where it's a cliche. Mm-hmm. Like every, with Cable and, you know, you know, Sopranos and Breaking Bad, all shows that I love, mm-hmm. but enough already. You know what I mean? Not everything, everybody is rotten and not everything has to be rotten. But even the new movies did went that route, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, the last movie was very dark, and by the way, it didn't do that well. Yeah. People think, you know, Hollywood, a lot of things were darker, grittier, you know. I don't like the Bat- the Nolan Batman movies mm. at all. Mm. And I like Heath Ledger. Right, right. But I don't like darker and grittier, mm-hmm. personally. I, I mean, I, that's I don't, not, I'm not, I prefer the Avengers, and, you know, I thought what, uh, you know, what was done in those when that movie was, was spot on. And that, you know, that's not, I think, why so many people gravitated to Star Trek. Yeah. You know, and it, it stayed with them throughout their lives. Right. You know, if it had been dark, you know, it would come and go and maybe be a, a temporary obsession. But yeah, no, no. The, the fact that it's, it's uplifting and, that, and, that, and, that, and you know, that, that there is a, an element of hope and an element of adventure. I think, I think the element of adventure is missing. You know, the idea of this is a new situation with new aliens and new creatures and, and, and part of what's, what's this going to look like and what's that going to be and what are they going to be like. It's gone. It's all, you know, boom, 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 and, you know. And that's the movies I understand, because the movies, like you said, you pointed out very well, the movies had a little bit of, very little exploring as well, in all in the original series movies as well. But as a series, I certainly think that should be front and center. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, I will free you. Thank you so much. Your nose. No, thank you. This is <laughs> great. Fun. So there you have it, Manny Cotto in his own words. Um, I remember uh, when I went to interview him for the book, uh, going over to Fox, um, where I had uh, I had just uh, finished. Uh, I don't know if I went over to Fox. I may have been there because I was doing Agent X at Fox. Mm. It was a TNT show, but we shot on the Fox lot. And Manny was on the Fox lot because he was in prep on Next at the time. So I don't even I don't even think I went over there. I think I went I went walked across the lot to talk to him at the time uh, for my book Fifty Year Mission, and it was the first time I ever met Manny. I hadn't had much to do with him because by the time Enterprise was on the air, I was no longer writing about Star Trek. I had already moved into uh, writing and producing. It was post-free Enterprise, and I wasn't really writing about Star Trek anymore. So when I did 50-Year Mission, it was very, uh, very... I specifically said to Ed Gross when we were divvying up the shows, I said, I want to do Enterprise. And he said, why? And I said, because I never had the chance to cover it, and this will truly be starting from scratch. Right. You know, and um, I, I can really like find out for myself why uh, people find this show so special. And 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 it was great because I met all these people I didn't know, like Mike Sussman, who I didn't know at the time, who have become very good friends with since. Um, I got to meet, uh, um, uh, obviously, uh, 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 Chris Black, who I just adored. Uh, uh, it led me to talk to David Goodman for the first time, who also I became very friendly with over as well. And of course, um, uh, it was the first time I ever really got to sit down with Manny Cotto, who was so generous with his time and so thoughtful. And I think the thing that I most appreciated about him was what a huge, huge fan of Star Trek he was. Because you got to remember, this was the era in which people had to stay in the closet. And I'm not talking yeah. about their sexuality. I'm talking about their love of Star Trek. They were looked down on if they loved Star Trek. So even people, it was different at Deep Space Nine, but certainly going back to Next Generation, you didn't want the front office to know that you love Star Trek. There was Never those people in the art department. 
but it was okay. They were in the art department, right? They would, but the writing staff had to really play it close to their vest if they were big Star Trek fans. It was it was a liability for them. And um, Manny came and made no bones about it. Star Trek was his dream gig, and uh, he was excited to be there. And uh, that passion translates. I think Enterprise um, has not only benefited uh, from the test of, the, 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 of time. Uh, but certainly, even then, the fourth season was something that people knew was something special. I think we look back now, it's even, you know, kind of better than we remember it um, uh, compared to other things. Subsequently, it looks even better. Um, so well, for all for all the, uh, you know, some people's complaints about the shows uh, being very skittish of dealing with the past of Star Trek, I think the fourth season of Enterprise did its best to not only embrace that quote-unquote canon, but uh, expand upon it and, and use it for its own benefit and uh, and tell some uh, very interesting stories. And not redefine it yeah. and not break canon. You know, yeah. there's that wonderful Through a Mirror Darkly where they go to the Mirror Universe, um, which is just a wonderful two-parter. Uh, of course, there was um, they did their Errand of Mercy uh, prequel observer effect about the Organians, um, the Forge, which you know kind of treads on a muck time. Um, they did their uh, 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 eugenics uh, war uh, story about the augments with uh, Brent Spiner. Um, uh, it, it was doing some really interesting storytelling, and in great Star Trek t tradition, they were also telling stories that were allegories like uh, 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 Terra Prime. Uh, the two-part with Peter Weller that we talk about, which is about xenophobia and fear of foreigners. And yeah. it's very interesting, of course, because Manny himself uh, was an immigrant having come from Havana, Cuba to America at a young age, um, which I think very much shaped his worldview. So, um, you know, it's... No, I just, I'm sorry. I, I, what the hell is my thought? I've got it. I mean, all of that, Yes, I mean it's 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 kind of fascinating looking at his at his place in Star Trek history, regardless of kind of what you think of Enterprise and kind of how it fits into the grand tapestry of all the Star Trek shows. But I'll tell you what I think is super, incredibly special and important about uh, what happens in this episode. And look, it's it's awesome that we get the remembrances of uh, of Manny from Brannon and Mike. But the truly special thing, Mark, and this is this is really all you having like the, you know, the presence of mind to realize that you had this material, these interviews with Manny that nobody has heard. It's special, you know. Not, I mean, yes, sure, it's special for us as as fans um, and for those who were his friends to hear it. But for those kids, because let me tell you something, um, you know, in the last week or so was the anniversary of my dad's death. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something about uh, being a, I'm not a child. I'm 52 years old. I'm a 52 year old man. I just You're got invited to the AARP and I'm also a child. And uh, when my dad died, uh, my mom busted out this recording of my dad. It was, it was video of him telling a story that he had never told about some things that he had done in the Vietnam War that were just sort of awesome and humane and kind and compassionate. It was like my dad just talking about it in his own words. And uh, when I went to, to visit her in the last 
two weeks. I walk into her house and I see that my mom has this little shrine to him with the flag and with his ashes. And behind it is his bronze star citation that nobody in the family knew that he had. My mother found it among his things, right? So I'm reading this and it's, he gets this bronze star for, uh, for, you know, consistent, you know, creative adaptations to novel problems in counterinsurgency operations. And I could translate that for you, it, but it doesn't matter because what it was for me was discovering something new about this person who is gone. Something wonderful about them, right? Uh, twice blessed with that. And for Manny's family to hear his voice, to hear these stories, to, you know, to, to experience this, to have this available to them is such a good mark. It's, um, it's, it's almost overwhelming uh, in how much of a good that it is and the, the value that it has. Yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. I'm just, I'm glad we can share it. That's an amazing story. Um, you know, I, I, a lot better than mine in which I cut my father out of my own movie <laughs> <laughs> and he never forgave me for it. <laughs> and then whenever I go to watch the movie, I could have had this great time capsule of my father when he was young and vibrant. And of course, it's not in there because we cut him out of the fucking movie. Anyway, um, this is this is, I think, a terrific show. I think this is why we do the Trexperts to shine a light on all these important aspects of Trek that maybe would be overlooked under other circumstances and, and uh, why I think this show is important, Marion. And, uh, <laughs> and I thank you for joining us. Um, if you want to um, continue to do a deeper dive into Trek adjacent subjects, you can subscribe to Deck 78 at trekspertsplus.com. You can follow us and share your own Manny Cotto memories on social at Inglorious Trek and Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram and threads. I, I can't even say that seriously with a straight face when I say, and threats. <laughs> and uh, you mean the BBC and telefilm? You know, it's pants. like, no. Uh, um, sweet threads, daddy-o. And of course, um, next week we'll be back with more laughter and quips than this week. Um, and uh, uh, <laughs> we hope that you'll join us um, at Comic-Con. Uh, where we'll be doing a number of exciting panels at San Diego Comic-Con next week, followed uh, by our uh, um, uh, 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 beaming down to uh, Rolla. Rolla? Rolla? That's a new one. I was so... <laughs> didn't you almost had it. Calls for a t-shirt. Raleigh. Stupid vowels. <laughs> so um, we'll be in North Carolina for the Great Galaxy Con, uh, where we have some real treats in store for you, uh, followed by the Creation 57-Year Mission uh, in Las Vegas the following week. And uh, you can find us at our table where you'll be able to buy books, support the incredible uh, Kickstarter that we'll be telling you about, um, as well as um, uh, um, coming and, to one of our your, many exciting panels. And your panels. scooters at Mark. Please don't. <laughs> okay. You'll be doing a memorial Shields episode up. about me. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's the, you can warn me. Veer off! <laughs> I said Vera <laughs> if you can't do this in the next, three, in the next 30 seconds you never will um, 
So, uh, so those are the things that, that we're going to be up to. So it'd be exciting stuff. Um, and of course, uh, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to the Trexperts. Um, and uh, until next week, on behalf of Ashley Edwin Miller, Darren Doctor, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. And uh, again, our condolences and um, our best wishes uh, to the Cotto family that has experienced this horrible loss. And uh, we wish you nothing but better days ahead.